0: Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only the world, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. I
1: remember a time when there were two political parties in America that both believe in our democracy. I no longer have a sense that there are two political parties that share goals. The
0: Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisencraft
1: Hello, everybody. Happy Saturday. Well, my friends, this is going to be our last show together this year. I I hope you have fabulous holiday plans and that you head into the new year with gratitude for what we have and optimism for what we might accomplish. My own list of things to be thankful for is a long one. It begins, of course, with my family, my bride, Jennifer Schulze, who some of you have gotten to know this year, because from time to time, she talks about the media on Jonas Esposito's show and my three grown children all now finding their way in the world. My brother and his family in Los Angeles and my mother still going strong even as our own kids reach Medicare age. But look, that's just a start of my list of things to be thankful for. A year ago, almost exactly a year ago, I I told you that the right wing in our country was going to be full of fury because what they had been taught to fear was finally coming to be that the United States would be the world's first truly multiracial democracy, where power belongs to every individual. A year later, I am so proud that Americans stood up to that fury and brought us closer to making our democracy a truly shared responsibility among all our citizens. Even this year, We are, at the beginning, certainly, of this year, we were all hand-winging over the Build Back Better bill, with Democrats very publicly negotiating a large and complex piece of legislation. When that cratered, some pointed fingers, others despaired, but quietly, carefully, our congressional leadership went to work, and the resulting output was truly historical. The 117th Congress, I'm grateful for them, coming to a close now, it proved that democracies can act, can act decisively, and can move the country forward. This Congress gave us a massive infrastructure bill that will upgrade our roads, our bridges, our airports, our water systems, and expand Wi-Fi everywhere. This is good on its face, and it's even better when you consider all the union jobs, good jobs that will be created to do the work, this Congress gave us the chips bill, which is already leading to billions in private investment in high tech and manufacturing here in the United States. This is good on its face. And it's even better that the bill also meets national security goals of reducing our exposure to Chinese pressure on Taiwan, where today's advanced con- computer chips are made. They gave us the Marriage Protection Act to protect love from a hateful Supreme Court. And here they did the unimaginable. Democrats opted not to bring this to the floor before the election where it might have passed, and it might also have given them a political weapon against naysaying Republicans. Instead, they showed both political courage and leadership by waiting until after the election so that it could pass with bipartisan support. They put America over party. and sent the strongest message to the country and to the courts about who we are. And When Democrats couldn't get any Republican support, we went on our own and passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which really might better be named the We Are Finally Taking Climate Change Seriously Bill. As an American, I am very grateful and proud of what we accomplished in Washington this year. And Americans saw all this, and in the midterms, they took a step back from the precipice. They walked back from the self-destructive rage that led to the January 6th insurrection just two years ago. This was an historic election, a repudiation of a rogue Supreme Court, a step away from the big lies, and a determination, particularly by young people, that voting matters. But it was more, because in places like Wisconsin and Michigan, a new kind of democratic party is taking shape, one that organizes citizens to work together to solve local problems, and to build coalitions to tackle larger ones. This is the kind of political work that builds and strengthens communities. This year, when the divisiveness of one faction created a great coming together of all the rest, we got to see what's best Look, those fighting for civil rights, and those interested in science, those concerned about reproductive freedom, and those worrying about the stability of our political systems, we all came together in common cause to create a more perfect union. And that's just here. And how can we let the year end without thanking the heroes in Ukraine who have suffered so terribly and fought so bravely? So far, the West is holding, and with it, a rules-based international order that, while far from perfect, has made the world safer and more prosperous for 80 years now. We have much to be thankful for. But look, an illegitimate and dangerous Supreme Court poses a grave and continuing threat. The GOP now controls the House and promises a clown show rather than any effort at governing. And across this country. There are places where good people live and who deserve better. In Ohio, the land that democracy forgot, excuse me, or in some neighborhoods here in Chicago where violence holds decent people hostage in their homes. We have fought a good fight this year. We have a lot to be proud of. We will have to do it again next year. So I hope you have a good holiday and some rest. And as this one closes, I am most grateful that I get to fight this fight again with all of you. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'm going to introduce you to a very remarkable woman, Colette Holt. Stay with us.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, we are back and I get to introduce you to somebody remarkable. Colette Holt uh, runs a law firm. That is remarkable, but not the most remarkable thing. You know, as you, as you, uh, as any Kids grow up in this world. They tend to measure themselves a little bit by the people around them. Um, and I grew up with Colette, and so none of us measured up because Colette was the smartest person <laughs> of anybody I know. Growing up, she bolted out of high school before she, you know, before the rest of us, in order to go to Yale and become a lawyer and do amazing work. And she's built an entire life and career um, in the law, but for the purpose of uh, um making our society a more fair and equitable place colette um i'm glad we're talking in front of everybody instead of just to
2: each other for a moment <laughs> Well, thank you, Edwin. And that, that was a really wonderful introduction. I'm, that, that's very sweet. But no, I, I was not the smartest person in school. Um, Lord knows you were you know, right on up there. And Edwin has always been interested in uh, political issues, public affairs. So even when we were little guys, like in the sixth grade, I, I remember him talking to me about the economics project we had and how we're going to make sure that everybody got something out of it. So you haven't changed.
1: Okay. Uh, um, now that the Mutual Love Fest is, is going on long enough, let's bring everybody else in. <laughs> hey, Colette, Ted, just explain what you do, because, you, 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 I mean, you and I worked together as adults in Chicago when the city was trying to figure out how to fix what was, you know, corrupt contracting and turn it into sort of good government contracting, but then also to use the contracting process to build um, to build businesses in communities that have been left out from the city's contracting world.
2: Well, um, I work primarily, really almost entirely, on programs that are designed to open up doors for minority women um, and other disadvantaged uh, businesses. A little bit different than what people usually think of about civil rights, where they well usually imagine employment or housing, or education, or the criminal justice system, or whatever. Um, But government is a huge part of the economy. And as you know, um, in the relatively recent past, it was practically impossible for women, minority businesses to get into the government contracting space. Um, And so what I've done ever since I was an assistant corporation counsel for the city of Chicago um, is to focus on these programs. So uh, we assist uh, agencies with uh, designing these programs, collecting the data, uh, doing the research that the federal courts have increasingly required, um, maybe more about that later, um, as well as expert witness work with really a focus designed to uh, make sure everyone has a full and fair opportunity to compete.
1: Right. So I, I can't even remember the number, but I'm sure it's, it's hundreds of millions of dollars in contracting that cities like Chicago do over the course of an administration. and and, and, you know and that can't just all go to like the mayor's cousin or to the brother of a precinct captain in a ward that particularly matters that that spend itself because it's government spending should be also used not just to buy the products that the government needs but to build the communities the government
2: serves well exactly um you know everyone pays taxes um, nobody says, oh, you know, you're you're black or you're Latino, um, so you don't get to pay taxes. Um, so everyone's paying in, and I think that means everyone should have a full opportunity to compete uh, for for the basis uh, of the wealth of, of the city, or really any any entity. What's um, what's what sort of changed, I think, Edwin, since you and I were first working on this all those decades ago, is that now really the, the issue is, is much less about you know the precinct captain's brother um, than it is about very large businesses that have the resources, the lobbyists, um, and just frankly, the uh, financial uh, capital and clout, uh, to be able to keep out small businesses and, and really engage in it. It's not monopolistic behavior, that's probably a little strong, uh, but certainly it's a very close circle. So these programs are are just critical. I mean, one of the things that we learned over these decades, and, and I've conducted dozens and dozens of what are called disparity studies. Um, one of the things that that's very clear is that without some type of affirmative intervention in the market that minority and women-owned firms especially black-owned firms just don't get any work I mean, where we've seen these programs struck down um you know the, the participation of, of minority firms disappears almost overnight uh, and so you know at, at this point yes we are always on the lookout for for corruption but it's more now it, it's more systemic now i guess i would say um, and that it's just very difficult for any small firms uh, to do business with government, um, but especially for those that don't have the connections, that don't have the capital. Um, government tends to pay very slowly um, to be able to to get in there and survive. So um, these programs are as important as they've ever been.
1: Well, um, they may be as important as they've ever been, but they're under an attack in a way they've never been. Um, well, never is too strong, but certainly not recently. I mean, I, I, the people who are listening to this show are probably familiar with Stephen Miller, right? He was Trump's advisor. He's the proud father of the idea that it's, you know, good policy to rip children out of the arms of their parents at the border and separate them forever because that somehow will terrify people from coming to the United States. That guy was given a boatload of money to create a legal uh, lobby, a legal firm, but it mostly is... Doing um, it's it's suing on policy called America First Legal, and I think they they've raised a whole bunch of money just to claim that Colette, everything you do is anti white bigotry.
2: Yes, that's absolutely right. And um, uh, yeah, Stephen Miller is uh, is an interesting and, and in my view extraordinarily dangerous person um, because he has a worldview um, that that really does seem to promote uh, the idea that. Um, basically, white males um, should be in charge, and if they're not well that's a problem and any attempts to broaden or, to, or uh, the contracting pool or, or anything um, are somehow anti american so um, he's filed um, this group, America first legal and you know doesn't that name ring a bell um, has filed what are I'm sad to say are a series of extraordinarily successful lawsuits in the last eighteen months or so. Um, So one of their first attacks was against uh, President Biden's um, COVID relief package that included a program to assist minority and disadvantaged and small farmers. Um, Certainly, black farmers um, have been subject to decades, and depending on how you want to define it, centuries um, of exploitation and discrimination. And in fact, to the best of my knowledge, the largest civil rights settlement in history still remains black farmers against the united states department of agriculture so this isn't even some private actor uh, that was denying people equal opportunity or discriminating against them on the basis of race to get loans or equipment or whatever this was the federal government um and and there's dreams of academic literature we've got settlements i mean it's just as a trial lawyer you could hardly ever ask for a record stronger than this and yet um america first um sued the biden administration One of my favorite little vignettes about this is that uh, the lead plaintiff in Texas um, is a guy named Sid Miller, who no relation to Stephen as far as I know, but um, is the agriculture secretary for the state of Texas. Huge rancher, landowner, um, and he took one of those um, cheek swab tests, you know, you scrape your cheek to find out about your ancestry and discovered that he had some minute um, uh, ancestry that was African. I might want to ask about how that all happened, but maybe that's another conversation. But anyway, um, so he claimed that therefore he should be part of this program. And, and one of the more disturbing aspects of of the complaint that they filed was going back to this discredited idea of blood quantum, and heard that in decades, you know, so that if you have any quote unquote black blood, um, that therefore you are black, and therefore you should be um, able to participate um, in this this program. It was it was really. Um, quite extraordinary set of arguments. And then, you know, you're in political theater land when they throw in a reference to Elizabeth Warren and Pocahontas uh, and Dred Scott. So, you know, I think Oh, my really gosh. It, yeah, we certainly took it seriously. But they've been extremely successful. Um, the federal courts have been joined this program, I think, in four different jurisdictions. And the Biden administration finally, and might be wisely, kind of threw in the towel and said, OK, We're going to open up this program to any small farmer. uh, And uh, then there's another provision that if you can prove that you were discriminated against, you can get the money. But that's going to be very difficult.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, America is deeply. um, I don't know what the right word is. I mean, we've always been insane on issues of race in America, Um, uh, stupid and cruel. Um, unconscionable, and now we're also just deeply confused. I think um, so. So the Supreme Court is hearing cases right now that may put an end to any kind of race-based remedies.
2: forever. Yes. Um, again, deeply worrisome. Um, the case there are two cases. They were argued on October um, 30th, 31st, I think. Um, they are challenges to Harvard University and the uh, University of North Carolina's undergraduate affirmative actions admissions program. Um, the case was brought by another one of these right-wing uh, anti-civil rights um, litigation shops—not not America First, but there's a different one. He's been around forever, um, and they managed to recruit some Asian students um, who claimed that they had been discriminated against um, because Harvard was trying to do something to make sure that it had some black, and Latino students um, in the incoming freshman classes. Um, mm-hmm. the, the, the case, uh, it, one of the things that was particularly disturbing is that um, both universities had won um, at the district court level, at the trial court level, after full trials on the merits. Um, Harvard had been won on appeal, um, and so now we had two levels of federal courts that had rejected this idea that what they were doing was somehow discriminating against white and Asian applicants. Um, but the Supreme Court took up the UNC case, even though there is, in fact, no appellate court opinion. Now, that's not unprecedented, but it's pretty rare. Um, and I think the- not
1: in this. I'm going to interrupt for one second. Clay. Not in this court, which is begging for cases in order to make law.
2: That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, but this was a case tailor made for the justice to get a chance to overturn. What is now 30 plus years of settled case law about what universities can and cannot do? Um, it's extraordinarily activist, and so um, I did I did listen listen to the arguments, um, and it's really quite clear I think where uh, where they're where they're going. Um, Justice Alito has been on record for many years as opposing any kind of affirmative action, and uh, Clarence Thomas um, has been on record um, as as well, which is particularly Um, well, certainly since he benefited from affirmative action coming up. Um, So my expectation is that they're going to overturn the current state of the law and issue an opinion that says that Harvard and UNC cannot take race into account um, in any facet of their undergraduate admissions process. All these other privileges and benefits are going to be okay. Alumni kids, uh, geographic distribution, do you play football? All that's going to be fine. Did your parents give millions of dollars to the university? All that's going to be fine. But we won't be able to do anything to say that we want a student body that is racially uh, diverse um, and will uh, be interesting to see kind of what the universities come up with. From my standpoint about the contracting world, um, it will not directly affect us, but um, I think the message will be very clear, and there are cases pending out there right now that are challenging um, contracting business uh, programs that I work on. Um, Alameda County, which is Oakland, California, um, has been sued. Now, they have some special problems because they have a constitutional amendment um, that was passed decades ago um, that, that uh, outlaws affirmative action um, as, as, at uh, the state and local level. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also, there's also a challenge pending to the United States Department of Transportation's disadvantaged business program, which we were 17 and 0, in getting it upheld. Um, so I, I think the future doesn't doesn't look good um, for, for these programs.
1: Yeah, I think we live in a time when this court, this and it's a, forgive me, it's an illegitimate court for a lot of reasons. We don't have to talk about that at the moment, but this court, I believe, wants to make any race-based, um, I, I was gonna say remedies, but I think any race-based laws illegal. Um, mm-hmm. they, they just want to uh, pretend that history begins today, and we all start from the same place.
2: Yeah, and one thing that's so interesting about that is that Alito, in particular, Scalia before him, but they are always talking about originalism. You know, and what did the Constitution mean when it was when it was uh, written? Um, and so that it's interesting. They look backwards when they want to. And then when they don't want to, they act like everybody just dropped out of the sky uh, today. I mean, yeah. oh,
1: These guys have never yeah. looked any direction but backwards. They're backwards in every possible <laughs> way. And they've never, ever, ever hired a historian to work for the Supreme Court Um, and you know my my daughter graduated from law school she's uh, you know going to clerk these young clerks are fabulous and wonderful and smart but they're not historians so if they actually cared about what people thought at the time that a particular amendment passed they should hire people whose job it is to look in that and if they did they would hear a whole lot more nuanced world than the one that their heads are stuck up sorry
2: uh, oh, no, no, no. There's no, no, no question about that. I mean, the disingenuousness of these of these folks is is, is just mind bending. And, you know, it, yeah. it, you know, speaking of clerking and congratulations to her on that, um, I clerked for uh, what at the time was the uh, chief judge on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals there in Chicago, which is the, the court of appeals that mm-hmm. covers um, Illinois, um, Wisconsin and Indiana. And I knew in my early 20s, that was the best job I was ever going to have. Um, it was It was wonderful. <laughs> Um, and uh, uh, and, and, I, and my judge, Judge, judge Tom Fairchild, who just was a really interesting person in his own right, but he used to, to talk about the legitimacy of the federal court. And He used to say something along the lines of, why does anybody care what I think?
1: Wait, oh, Collette, I'm going to interrupt for you? one more yes. second yes. because Please, this is hang- – let me interrupt you for a second, Colette. This is a great topic. We should take some time on it, but it's the bottom of the hour, and I need to take a quick break. Everybody, yep, hold perfect. on. We'll be back with Colette Holt, who is brilliant and talking about the law. Stay tuned.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820.
1: Holt, who has spent her career uh, helping build programs that make government contracting more responsive to the uh, citizens that those governments serve. Um, and that is now in jeopardy by a court. And we went to break, and Colette was talking about the idea of legitimacy of the fe- federal courts. Go ahead,
2: Colette. Thank you. Yes, uh, this is one of the most um, frightening aspects of, of what's going on. Regardless of what I might think of any particular decision, the fact that, that they are engaging in, in one, is nothing, more than just sort of raw politicking. Um, and imposing their own policy preferences on, on the rest of the country um, is is very scary. Um, I was just saying before I went to break that the federal court of appeals that I quote for we used to talk about that, about what gives judges legitimacy. You know, he used to say something like, why does anybody listen to me? You know, he says, all we really even have is the marshals. He said, so we don't even really have firepower. So what makes us legitimate? Um, and he, he, he was always very concerned about anything that would... Um, caused people to question whether or not judges were, in fact, as neutral as any human being can be, but neutral arbiters. And and the Supreme Court has just about squandered that now. Um, And so there's so uh, much anger in this country. There's so much division that um, the court's becoming just another partisan player, um, I I think, has long-term consequences. Uh, that that really should uh, concern everyone, and I'm, I'm puzzled about why the justices don't seem to be concerned about it.
1: Right. Well, some are. I mean, the the I don't think the country is as divided as as it seems. I think there was a great coming together of people last year, in fact, uh, to overcome a um, threat to the country by a faction, a smaller faction, but a really in- Difficult and in Stephen Miller's world, um, but that faction has given us judges who who are outcome driven, not law driven, not jurisprudence driven. They uh, they they took the court in order to impose policies. Um, but it works the other way around. When a court follows all the rules um, and and is legitimate, like the Ohio Supreme Court even though run by Republicans, legitimate. When they said to the Ohio legislature, you can't use those legislative districts, they're unconstitutional, the Ohio legislature went ahead and used them anyway. It said, how many troops do you have? We don't have to listen to you. So the undermining of the court from a political faction has happened from both directions. Then um, uh, they just see the judiciary as a branch of, of uh, as a branch is the wrong word, as an instrument of power of those who rule and that's something that Hamilton and all the framers were desperately afraid of.
2: Well, and rightly so. Um, you, know, you saw the same thing in North Carolina. And one of the things that's so distressing is the fact that the that the federal courts and the Supreme Court in the end said to Ohio, "Oh, well, too close to the election, too late to do anything." Um
1: this sort of yeah, run they out. They said it the there, answer. but they said something else in
2: North Carolina. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So we'll see, you know, that the case that was argued this past week on um, the Moore case about uh, whether or not state legislatures basically can do anything they want to and the citizenry and the voters be damned. Um, they seem like maybe they're going to back away from that. And again, to your point about historians, there is no historical precedent for that. And yet they keep sort of harking about that, or at least the, 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 um, the petitioners did. So, you know, I guess I, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll see. But, you know, when I talk to young lawyers which, uh, of course, is our future, they have a cynicism that we didn't really have. Now, I come from a family of lawyers. My dad was a trial lawyer. My Uncle Leo was a judge there in Cook County, my cousins. I mean, we're a bunch of lawyers. And when you think about the fact that a black lawyer of my father's generation, who would have been 101 this past January, Mm. could still have faith. I know. I know. And a great man, for those of us who knew him. Great. Man. Oh, yes. Well, thank you. My dad was a, was a Tuskegee airman and, you know, did, was a civil rights lawyer and ran for, for city council in 1964 under a yeah. slogan of, uh, of um, representation, not exploitation. Um, so he was, a, he was a pretty, pretty radical guy in a lot of ways. But, but the fact that my father could still have faith in the court system, being a black man born into the depths of Jim Crow in the South. Um, And to talk to kids now, and they're just so cynical, it it really kind of breaks my heart because I wanted to be a lawyer because I wanted to go change the world. Um, And I I think I've had some impact on my own little tiny corner of it. But when I talk to young law students and, you know, and when your daughter is, is recent, so you probably have more of this than I do and they have a different view. But they do seem to be very cynical in some ways about what the law is, about what their careers could look like, and, you know, who can not blame them, the ones that are coming out with $250,000 worth of student loan debt. But mm-hmm. it's, just, it's just all sad. I don't know. Do you see that, too, when you talk to your, your daughter and her friends? Are they um, getting cynical as well?
1: No, they're worried, but they're not, they're not cynical about the, the law. They're cynical about um, – uh, how the law is used by the world's uh, biggest consumers of lawyers, you know, the corporate use of, of law firms to, um, you know, to Im- impose their will or protect their rights. Um, you know, she'd like to be doing a lot of good. She's at a big firm and sometimes she's on cases that are really interesting as matters of law. Um, uh, m- maybe the outcomes aren't the ones that in her heart, you know, she has. <laughs> the most interest Mm -hmm. in, but, um, as, as matters of she still believes that this system, um, is, uh, is a pathway to, you know, uh, civil society. And, and I do too. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I, I can't imagine a a different way of organizing our society and protecting the individuals in it and balancing the rights in a complex place than through a, uh, 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 traditional legal system that that respects precedent that moves carefully that argues facts in the law i i I can't imagine anything that would do a better job
2: i can't either So, so that that's good to hear um because they are they are future and and that you know they will be leading us we're at the age now where we're starting to turn the reins over to them i think of them all as babies but they aren't um You know, one of the things I think is interesting about these minority women business programs is that, to the extent that they get truncated or just eliminated, um, I I think people are going to start pivoting more towards the private sector. Um, And that is is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, The profit margins are better, generally speaking. Uh, You get paid faster. There's less red tape and bureaucracy, and a lot of that contracting red tape is there for good reasons. and so one of the things I've been saying to the minority contractors that I, that I talk with and speak to and counsel is time for some pivoting. Ask yourself, are there private sector opportunities that I can go after? Um, now, that said, though, those can be extremely difficult to break into because you talk about the good old boy system. Um, at least in the public sphere, um, you have competitive bidding, and it be as competitive as we'd like all the time, but at least it's ostensibly competitive. You can see proposals. You know how much people uh, were paid for various uh, goods or services. The private sector is completely opaque. Uh, and so what minority firms tell me, is that is the most difficult work to get, and I, I believe it. Um, but I think it's it's time for the private sector to start stepping up and saying, okay, maybe government won't be open, but we're open for business with everyone.
1: Yeah, I think that is um... – an important transition and maybe the best possible answer. I mean, one. when I was CEO of the Sun Times, I, I directed my team to cast a broader net for our suppliers. Um, and if they could hire folks who companies that were owned by women, owned by, um, uh, had, had Black ownership or Latino ownership, owned by the people in whose communities the the newspaper was popular, I wanted to I wanted to see that. But we had no we had, it's a newspaper business. We had no money, and it turns out <laughs> that we got you know th- that the small businesses hustled and gave us better deals. They were better contractors than the ones who had the money to show up in the beginning. So yeah, you I, I just – see that mm-hmm. you know it's so I think the private sector is. Just the, just the need for profits may begin to push people to look a little more broadly at their supplier set than they have done in the past. And that may open up a lot of new doors.
2: Well, that, that's certainly the hope. I think they have to be intentional about it. It, it won't happen without real um, uh, focus uh, and no, letting people know that you're open for business to them, how to go find them, let, let them know about the opportunities. So, um, you know, just having a good attitude is, is not, is, is not going to do it. But I see that all the time, frankly. And, you know, not to knock on big law firms. I mean, I started out my career at, at one and um, still have very fond memories of that. And, and you know, these firms are um, extraordinarily competent. But if, for me, you know, we have like 15 people. If you're the client, you're going to talk to me. And I'm going to be worried about what's happening to you and making sure that, 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 we're delivering, um, you know, quality product and, and giving you great advice. Um, because while we don't have that many clients and the ones that we have are, are very, very important to us. Um, mm-hmm. in a way sometimes that bigger firms or bigger organizations, you're just one more, you know, account, um, amongst hundreds or even thousands. And so I'm hoping you're right that, that business, that uh, private sector larger firms will start taking a look at smaller firms and saying, hey, maybe these people really are going to give us better service. Um, and frankly, the other thing is we often don't have the overhead. Um, you That's know, right. I'm not paying for some guy's mansion up there in, in, uh, in um, Highland Park um, or his art collection, you know? so. Um, <laughs> and, and I think the other thing is this, all this research that talks about how diverse groups make better decisions, that the echo chamber effect is real, and that if you have people who have different life experiences in the room talking together trying to move something forward you just get better results so what i try to do is i can is make a business case for diversity and inclusion in contracting I and mean, i can make you a moral case in a minute but i think a business case is is, is important um, because you know these are for profit businesses um, of course newspapers don't have any money um but uh, you know all not all sectors of the economy are, are you know always having to hustle and struggle um, and so, um, you know, let let let's let's build a diverse base of businesses, which is just good for the city. You it's know, good for every yeah, yes, and role models. I mean, part of what I, one of the things that I hear from minority contractors, especially Black contractors, is that hey, I had to completely find my own way. I didn't know anybody who owned a the business. There was nobody to teach me the ropes. It's like being a lawyer. The minute you get out of law school, you've got this nice, fancy degree, and hopefully your law license and your parents are bursting with pride, but you don't even know where to go find the bathroom in the courthouse yet. So somebody always has to teach us what to do. And minority Mm -hmm. firms, again, especially black firms, lack those kinds of mentors. Um, And so I'm very focused these days on mentor-protege programs. Uh, I've seen them work very, very well um, when they're well-resourced. Um, and there are timetables and objectives, and people are held accountable for how we're going to help these firms grow. Um, another thing that really helps is, of course, access to capital. Um, I'm sure you know, and probably most of your listeners know, um, that the average black family has one-tenth of the wealth that the average white family has. I mean, These numbers are really just shocking still in this day and age. Pause
1: there for one second, because I sure. just have to remind everybody every time. That there's a reason for that, and the reason, and and there are many reasons for that. One of them is the crime of the federal government post World War II, making uh, uh, building wealth across America in their housing programs like FHA, but specifically saying that black families weren't allowed to participate. So I mean, yes. the 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 these the, the, the statistics are there. There's a reason for them. I mean, and those guys on the Supreme Court who think history is important. Um, we got here because of things that we did
2: yes and and a very personal example of that is um black gis re- returning from the world war ii were not eligible for the gi bill so my father when he <laughs> finished up bedmore house and then wanted to go to law school um, and got accepted at several places including harvard but there was no money to go so he came to chicago with my mother Um, who got a job teaching school um, and then worked his way through law school at night at what was then the John Marshall law school, which is now the university of Illinois at Chicago. So that's, that's Mm -hmm. all quite wonderful, but you know, the opportunities just weren't there. So it was housing. It was access to other benefits. Um, Yep. When, uh, when I started building the federal highway system, they gave white business owners, white construction guys, surplus army uh, equipment, bulldozers, pavers, everything. Um, to get them going. Um, and needless to say, you know, black soldiers uh, were not going to be afforded anything like that. So the federal government and government in general um, has certainly helped to create the situation that we're in. And so I can certainly you know, make the argument, and I think it's right, that government has a particularly affirmative duty to do, try to undo some of this damage that is that is truly generational now. Um, and, and, and so, you know,
1: just For those of you who are listening, the story is appalling, but the, the the interesting and I think positive thing to hear in this is that the government programs are able to create wealth. They are able to create intergenerational wealth. They are able to lift families up. They did it for millions of Americans just to happen to say, you can't participate if you're Black. So now that we know these things work. We know how they work. We know how to help families lift themselves up to be full participants in all of the aspects of America. And now that we can do that, the government's going to say, well, you know what? Let's still just now not do that for families who are Black. Crazy, right? Because we could use the tools we now know work. We know they work. We have generations of experience on how to build communities up. And we have a Supreme Court that says, yeah, no, maybe not.
2: No, And and we absolutely do know what works, and I think that's a great point. Um, I've been working on these programs for over 30 years, and I absolutely can tell you what works. Um, I can tell you how to put together a program that will ensure equal um, opportunity to compete, level the playing field, um, and really help people to grow. You know, there's a a pretty solid body of research out there uh, that uh, suggests that uh, minority-owned firms disproportionately hire minority workers. So it isn't just that the business owners have the opportunity to to build wealth. It's that they they actually are creating opportunities in disadvantaged communities for people who might um, get shut out. They do act as mentors and role models. You know, most of us can't do something we've never seen. I heard somebody once say that's the definition of genius, is to be able to create something you've never seen. And most people aren't geniuses and don't need to be. They just need an opportunity forward, And so, you know, growing larger black firms and not just construction. I mean, we, we talk about construction a lot because it's such a big part of government spend, but the government buys a lot of stuff and you know, making sure everyone can, can compete. Remember years ago, I worked on a project for the state of Missouri. You know, it was just appalling that the department of corrections, you can, and you know, who's locked up the department of corrections had no minority vendors. Now, now, now how's that work? Um, and you know, this was, uh, uh, back when uh, Mel Carnahan was governor. So we are going back a ways, um, but you know, we were able to, to, change that to some extent. So we do know what works. And one of the things that's just so frustrating and upsetting is to watch the courts start to just unravel, um, the progress that we've made. So we have to figure out if and when that happens. And I think it's more if than when, and what are we going to do, um, um instead? um targeting programs by race is what really works there are other things that can be done that should be considered like
1: yeah i mean like the whole banking right. industry i suppose we can lean on the way we did in the community reinvestment act for real estate mm-hmm. loans but we can we can lean on them for investing in people and businesses in the same way i suppose
2: absolutely um Link deposit programs are, are excellent. Mm-hmm. Illinois has really been a pioneer there from back when Pat Quinn was treasurer. So that, that's a while now um, in um, allowing um, uh, their contracts to be used as collateral for loans um, and saying to institutions that get millions and millions of dollars in fees off of the government uh, accounts that they have. I mean, you can imagine how much money flows through the state of Illinois for payroll every month
3: mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
2: to uh, to say, we want you to help us. So I love that you referenced the Community Reinvestment Act, which of course goes to residential real estate. I've been saying for years, we need something like that for businesses, that we need to be scoring these banks on how well they are doing and giving loans uh, to minority um, applicants uh, for business capital, um, yep. and, 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 and making sure that they are accountable Um, As as well, I I haven't ever gotten anywhere with this idea, but um, I still think it's the right one.
1: Well, it may be the only one after the courts are finished.
2: Yes, that's that's probably right. Um, And there's a there's a huge body of literature out there now. The Federal Reserve Banks have been very active in this and they've got great, great um, researchers and academics that they work with um, about discrimination in business capital. And some of it is very recent because, of course, we were all concerned about what was going to happen to these small minority disadvantaged firms um, in the pandemic. You know, I just was so worried that all my little guys were going to go out of business, Um, and and many did, but but not everyone. And the government kept spending. So there's research even about what happened with you know the COVID relief funds, those PPP loans. Who got Mm -hmm. those? You know, scam. Members of Congress, apparently. Yes, yes. Apparently, yes. It, it, it is that interesting because um, yeah. we all know that you know they were so disadvantaged and and well talk about self dealing. That's something that. We yeah, and, and, and many even voted against it and proud. took it. Yeah. I know. I know. Well, the hypocrisy of these people—they um, are just shameless. <laughs> shameless. I mean, you know, at, at least try to look like you have some some um, idea that maybe you look like a, a nasty little hypocrite. Nope. They just yeah. keep right on going. So. You know, we're really hopeful that, that we'll find new ways, and I've got lots of ideas about that, but, but I think people need to get ready for what is going to be the change. The only good thing I could say that came out of the Dobbs decision, this is literally the only good thing, was that the people that I've been telling to for years, you know what, these programs might not be around, the federal courts might strike them down, who would say to me, oh, they wouldn't possibly do that. Now recognize, oh, yes, they will.
1: Oh, yes, they will. Yeah, Dobbs, I think, woke many, many, many people up. Um, okay. And I think um, they didn't just wake people up to the issues of, of reproductive choice. They woke they woke people up into, in, um, I mean, most people, thank God, don't pay the attention to politics that you pay and I pay and the listeners of this radio show pay, <laughs> right? If they did, then who'd be able to go to a movie? Nobody would be working because we're be working on this all the time, right? So I'm glad our country <laughs> doesn't pay attention to politics like we do. But Dobbs um, woke people up to the fact that you know what people like you and me who've been warning about this for a long time, and that people are saying, oh no, oh no, M- maybe we're right. But the other side of maybe we're right is, hey, maybe those other guys have been lying the whole time. And that th- that I think is going to be very hard for the uh, Republican Party to uh, overcome. I know maybe there's a new conservative party, a new conservative approach. You know, I kind of welcome that because I'd rather fight this out in a political framework than in an insurrection. But um, yes, wouldn't we? All?
2: Yeah. Wouldn't we? All? Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, people really are, are much more um, engaged now and especially younger voters, younger people, which is which is great. I mean, it's, I mean, I, young women like, hello, guess what? You're not going to have the freedom that, that your mothers and even your grandmothers had at this point. Um, so no. I think that that, that that part really is useful. Um, the insurrection, of course, also what people up today did, that there are people who simply do not believe that this is a legitimate government. Something that you know, continues to shock me every time I see them in the footage, it's just n- nauseating and mind-bending that, that this could happen. But I do think that, that the increased attention is a, is a good thing. Now, of course, everyone can't be politics junkies like you and me you know before i get out of the bed i've read three newspapers already but I, most people don't do that but it is important that people be um, cognizant of what's going on around them and one of the things that i sort of fault political leadership for has not has been not wanting to talk about policies and issues as much as just kind of juicing people up uh, and, and we see where where that's gotten us so you know i'm i'm I've, I've, i always try to you know be hopeful um to have faith in the general sense of the term of hoping for uh, the best in the future. Um, You know, we'll certainly keep, keep cranking along in our shop um, and um, uh, make, trying to make, you know, whatever progress we we can, but um, you know, it's a dark time. And I don't think we should sugarcoat that. I, I don't, I'm not sure I agree with
1: you about it being a dark time. I think we have, we are seeing the apogee, the high point of a, Half a century of hard work to capture a Supreme Court and to make it the handmaiden of some interests on the right. Um, really, mostly about uh, business regulation, but, but in order to get there, they had to whip people up for all kinds of other things. Um, mm-hmm. I think we're at the top of that, Colette. I think we are in for a, I, I think we have passed a milestone that we are going to be a really shared government. You know, we're, we're going to be a multiracial democracy where power is actually shared amongst everybody who lives here for the first time. And that, and that means if the Supreme court shuts a door, we're going to open three others.
2: So we're going to have to, and and I certainly hope you're right. You know, I live in San Antonio, Texas now, and and down here, it's just fascinating. Um, I mean, Bexar County, which is San Antonio, Democrats captured every single office. Um, (laughs) But you wouldn't know that from the national media about how they talk about Texas. So I, I hope that, that, that you're right. Um, and and I, I want you to be right, and I, I want to be be there with you um, about that. That that maybe we're we're about to turn a corner here. Um, I think we've turned. It, young people
1: be. are young people are not having this old these old dogs anymore. They are on our side. They, you know, they are they want a fairer world.
2: Yes, and 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 we do, des- and they deserve it. Mm-hmm. Um you know, they should look at you and me, our generation, go, yeah, you guys did a really good job. Uh, no, not really. Um, and so I'm very excited about the way young people are, are galvanizing and organizing and, and making themselves, making themselves heard. Um, I, yeah, I, think that, I think that's wonderful. I think that's wonderful. So, you know, we're hopeful.
1: Um, we'll see. <laughs> All right. Well, we've reached the end of our time. Um, have a... Fabulous Christmas, a happy New Year. Yeah. I hope Santa comes yes, with a bag can. stuffed full of good stuff for you.
2: <laughs> That's a, actually, I'm just happy to, to to see another Christmas. It's okay.
1: It's okay. Well, so right. thank you. So right, well, much.
2: it was a lot of fun.
1: Yep, yep. Everybody, that was Colette Holt. She, uh, he's brilliant and knows these issues better than anybody. And, you know, on the uh, Colette, are you still there? I'm still here. Tell them the name of your law firm, so just in case somebody's looking.
2: Oh, Flathold and, okay, and Associates. <laughs> yeah. And Pretty easy.
1: You. We're
2: all over the web.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. So there you Thank are, you everybody. All right. We're going to take a quick break, listen to some news, and when we come back, um, we will turn to sort of a review of the year with Mark Maxwell.
0: You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisencraft on WCPT 820.
1: All right, everybody. Mark Maxwell is back. Uh As I say every time he joins me, one of my favorite former Illinois residents, um, he is covering politics for KSDK in St. Louis, and a very, very clear head about politics in the world. Hi, Mark. Hey, everyone. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good, actually, Um, in part because I, you know, have a lot to be thankful for for this year, Um, and- I don't know why. I mean, I do know why, but people challenge me on this. I am optimistic about what we're leaning into. But I'd love to get your sense of, you know, what you think the arc of politics was like in this year that's coming to an end. Lessons we've learned, the stories that were sort of stunning. You know, I um, I have my own list, but I'd love to hear yours.
4: Sure. I guess this is that time of year when we all stop and reflect and look back, and that can be healthy and it can be horrifying. We can be like, wow, we've gone through a lot of things. I, I sometimes <laughs> think we don't give ourselves enough credit for all that we've all been through in the last, let's say, two or three years, right? This was the year where I think most of our country sort of crept out of COVID, which gripped the political spectrum and, and obviously the healthcare care sector um, and, and just much of our life for a, a good year and a half, two years. In um, 2022 wow. was the year we kind of – one away from that. Pardon my my pets in the background; they're getting a little animated. Um,
1: one in the room. With I think me.
4: that. Yeah, and, and the reason I start there with COVID is because I think that really that stressor was something that drove obviously inflation, which was probably one of the biggest political and economic stories of 2022. It's the, the American consumer just got gouged at the gas pump, at grocery stores. Um, that inflation is is one of the biggest drivers, I think of. uh, of the way we view politics right now. Um, and, and that was a, an aftershock of COVID, right? So we had that. And then obviously with the, the social or civil uh, unrest around, you know, the, the election deniers lost big in the most recent election. But remember that was unclear going into the election. I mean, now we see it with clarity, but for much of 2022, Joe Biden's approval ratings were underwater and, you know, they kept plugging along kind of doing their thing at the white house with the inflation reduction act and passing a big gun safety measure and, uh, trying to use executive power to uh, pull a student loan debt forgiveness plan across the finish line. Um, so they were doing things they felt were politically popular um, for, for the American public, but people didn't really buy into it at the ballot box until they put that record up against the contrast of not all, but some uh, of the Republicans who were more extreme in, in nature, the ones who couldn't, you know, they, they were still trying, the, the, the Republicans that were still trying to litigate 2020 in 2022, they didn't do so well. And I think a lot of that sort of stems from people wanting to put 2020 and COVID and just all of that behind us.
1: Well, I actually, so you've raised a lot of things I want to talk about. Um, uh, I, I think, you know, we have been engaged in, you said civil unrest, It's um, um, but certainly we've been torn we've been torn by the election deniers and Donald Trump versus the rest of the country. Is our government legitimate or is it, is it a fake? Is it a fraud? And um, are elections, a way in which we can um, mediate our differences or are we past that in our history? And I mean, that was what was on offer from the election deniers and the Trump world. They said elections are a sham. They're not the way we make these decisions anymore. And I, and I think that insurrection That's what that is. It's a different, it's a, it's a forceful way to have a different political order than the one we have. I don't think it's over, but I think we passed. If, if, if you pardon the Civil War metaphor, I think this last election was Gettysburg. There's still a lot of war after Gettysburg, but the outlines of the direction are finally clear. You know, I mean, after D Day, it was clear the Allies were going to win World War II, but a lot of people still got killed. Um, I think we are. In 2022 was the year America figured out which side was going to win this, this insurrection. Um, and was it going to be successful? Or was it going to, or were we going to find our senses and save the country? And I'm interested in your take on that, because I, I don't think we're done, I don't think we're done with it yet. Um, but I do think we know with some certainty, how it's going to end. Cool.
4: Well, that certainly is one of the most uh, compelling things about why so many of us stay tuned to politics is because every story is still yet being written. I mean, it, it's always an ongoing debate, uh, and the directions are, are interesting. I, I think it's been a disorienting period of time. You know, If we're going to u- continue using the, the, the wartime analogies, the fog of war, right? I mean, in, in the last two or three years, I think it's been less clear about which type of party would emerge on the other side, on both the Democratic and Republican side. But I think we're getting a little mm-hmm. bit closer to seeing – you know, I don't know that all the Republicans, uh, especially the younger Republicans that have ambition, are really staking the future of their political ambition on, you know, election denying alone. I, I think that's that really got rejected roundly at the polls. And I think a lot of the Republicans that hope to have a future in power took that lesson um, from what I can see. And th- there's a different sort of offshoot from that. that, that Wait, we're seeing Don't leave
1: that. Don't leave that yet. Don't leave that yet. Yeah. You have a young, ambitious Republican United States Senator in Missouri, and I'm wondering, are you telling me that he's moved off of this?
4: Well, Josh Hawley is is hard to figure out. I think he's politically savvy. Um, He definitely wants to play to his Missouri base, his conservative, uh, you know, libertarian base in in the Missouri primary. He wants to continue courting their support. Um, You know, look, in 2024, he'll be back on the ballot again, and he's already said he plans Mm -hmm. to run for reelection. But he was one of the ones who came out and tro- I, I, you sense a little bit of sense straddling in his response to 2022 in the election results. But he said, we, the old party's dead. We need to have a post mortem. We need to move on. We need to bury it. I mean, he was using pretty dark language about the old party. And I, I tried to put him on the spot and say, define that. You know, if you're going to if you're going to eulogize someone, you have to at least name them. Are you talking about Donald Trump? And then he'll he'll start to hem and haw and hedge a little bit and say, well, you know, that's for voters to decide. But I think that the future of our party Needs to focus on you know workers, and you know he he's really somebody who, at least in a rhetoric sense, is focused on trying to appeal to you know average everyday folks. But when I go talk to some of the folks in the unions and say, "Hey, how does it take take for example this railroad strike that recently happened, and, and President Biden and mm-hmm. Congress sort of uh, forced their hand," uh, some of the unions weren't too happy about that. Uh, they felt like right. that set them up for a weaker negotiating positions in the future, and. Uh, anyway, Hawley voted against it and made a big deal out of it because he said we, the Republican Party, need to do a better job standing with workers. So I, I took that quote and his. I think he may have written an op-ed or some some comments about it. And I shopped it around to a few uh, different folks in the trades, and I said, can, can you think of any other times where he has uh, voted for or put action behind support for workers? And they said uh, almost unanimously to me, you know, one vote does not a friend to union make. You know, so he's certainly trying to uh, tap into something new. Um, but that seems to be his pivot away from 2022. That's
1: really, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I hadn't followed up on Josh Hawley at all. And I, that's interesting. I mean, that, that helps me think maybe the insurrection part of our life is coming to an end. There'll be other challenges, but I'll be thrilled that that one's done. Okay. Keep going.
4: I mean, he had the very embarrassing moment that was broadcast sort of astray in the middle of that January 6th committee hearing. Everybody remembers the, the video of him running away from the violent mob just a few hours after, you know, fist pumping and and rousing them up outside. Yep. Uh, And I think he, he tried to say, look, I'm honored to be, you know, uh, lampooned by this sham committee or, you know, I'm paraphrasing him there, but he he tried Mm -hmm. to say it was a badge of honor for him. But I, uh, my sense from his staff and the people around him was that was a very (laughs) embarrassing moment for him. And I think he does want to put some distance between himself and and that moment.
0: Good.
1: That's good. Uh, Good for the whole country. Well, yeah,
4: I mean, I mean uh, it just does this doesn't is, look like a yeah, winning campaign strategy, right?
1: Right. I mean, this was the year that um, the people who lost elections in America um, had as big of an impact on our future as the people who won, because the ones who lost, with almost no exceptions, a few, but almost no exceptions, even the election deniers conceded. The, they said... It's a democracy. You know, forget what I said yesterday, Mastriano in Pennsylvania. Like, forget everything I campaigned on. I lost, but, um, and, and that I think is so good for the country.
4: Well, it it, it raises a question too, and, and one of the things that I think we're still grappling with going into twenty twenty three is is uh, the American political public and its relationship with truth. And and look, in politics, truth can be so subjective, right? I mean, it's a lot of it is about opinion and perspective and where you're coming from, but those basic core facts that we can you know, demonstrably and verifiably prove and that we can put forward, or the other brand or breed of sort of celebrity politician that just says, just trust me, just believe me, just go along with my, my the show I'm putting on, the performative politics, the, the mm-hmm. sort of play uh, acting that we see from some. I think th- there are people in the audience that respond to this, and those people that respond to this kind of play acting in politics that's sending a market signal back to the politician to keep doing more of it. And so it just, just like in you know any other free market, so to speak, as long as the public is demanding some of the leaders to use power to punish their opponents or to seek out people that aren't like them and use their power. I mean, the, the more punitive style of politics, I think that's the new direction of uh, uh, so, some of politics. And, and you hope that, look, the politics is supposed to be a pathway toward peace, away from conflict. And yep. increasingly, I do think that some people are finding smoother, suave ways to use power to punish their enemies. And and, and that, I think, is something that, uh, is something we should all be just looking. Well,
1: for we have on, to watch. On, we have to watch that very carefully. I mean, m- my sense, Mark, is that is that because of gerrymandering and some other things, that is a path to win a primary. It may be a path to hold a district that's radically gerrymandered, but it's not a path for um, national success. Um, it's even hard to do at the state level. Um, so, so i because I, I, I think that brand got discredited a little bit. I mean, I just this week, President Trump held a major political announcement where he had these like NFTs of himself all, you know, dolled up as like, superheroes. I just think the 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 great avatar of that kind of politics is so, uh, so ridiculed even himself. It's hard to it's hard to pick up that mantle.
3: Right. Well, so, so that's the sort of uh, the
4: cartoon version of it, that Donald Trump, the big celebrity, selling selling his trading cards, he called them,
1: yeah. um,
4: and, and the, sort of the hero worship that he's seeking. But there's there are, are lighter versions of that. Um, All take over the example, country. You know, take, take, for example, the example of Ron DeSantis, and everybody points to him as sort of trump lighter, or Trump 2.0 or the smarter Trump, and I, I don't really know how everybody sort of came to agree on, on, on any of those uh, things, but uh, his his campaign arm, or maybe I think it was even his wife who shared a video of him recently, sort of co-opting the famous Paul Harvey, God made a farmer poem. Yep, And they they put it around his image and said, God made a fighter. Yep. And this was just tapping into the emotion of, here's a guy who's going to go to fight for you. And there there is sort of that same call to, if not worship, just really admire this this powerful leader who's going to fight for you and they're tapping into emotion more than reason. And when you look beyond that, at the actions that follow it, you see uh, an administration there in DeSantis in that signed the the bill that looked at uh, opening up litigation or opening up potential bans on any kind of uh, literature or curriculum or class uh, books in, in school libraries that had anything to do with a uh, sexual nature uh, or anything that basically made some folks feel uncomfortable, they could go and sue to get those books taken out or they could... File a rule, and already we've seen uh, books that have people of color or marginalized groups as the main characters. Those are some of the books being targeted. There, do so you have
1: yeah, that? Yep, There's also
4: professors. Them. There, there are professors who uh, academic freedom, their their ability to teach certain things at the high at the college level, <clears throat> is being called mm-hmm. into question. And even a even a, a, a prosecutor, who usually you endow with discretion on which cases to pursue and which ones not to. The, the governor in Florida, Ron DeSantis, is seeking to punish and strip uh, a prosecutor of their of, of their license, which in Florida they have that power. But, again, here you see the executive branch wielding uh, outsized power to try and crack down on the types of thoughts and ideas people can even discuss or the way we administer justice, which those, those are things that are unusual and stick out to me.
1: Yep. I think those are the battles still to fight. And it's not just the executive branch. We have this um, – In its clearest example, it in the Supreme Court, where uh, a court is imposing um, outcomes as opposed to anything that even passes the sniff test for a jurisprudential uh, look at the law and the facts. You know, begging for taking cases, inviting cases in order to make law. Um, It runs counter to uh, really the entire history of our justice system. So yeah, I agree with you. There are real dangers still out there. Um,
4: I would say, like, um, I think just in the nature of being fair. Uh, so, and, and I know some, some journalists have an impulse to like both sides, of everything, and that's not entirely the case here. But th- there's also uh, in politics we mirror our opponents, right? Sometimes we see they're doing this. Okay, well, we have to fight fire with fire. And on on the left, you don't see it as much with the the big bully at the top trying to push power down on the people and punish folks so much. But you do see a certain tribalism, too, where everybody starts to speak the same way. There's less independent thought. There. And if you're not pulling in the same direction, um, there is sort of a, a, a group. Um, I, I don't know how to describe it, but there's a phenomenon where people will get marginalized quickly if they speak up or criticize or, or yeah. raise a question. Yeah, their
1: questions. yeah that, that's certainly been true um, on the left, uh, that uh, intolerance is a. Is a, is a shared trait across this political spectrum. Um, but the, the key difference for me um, is that while particularly young people sometimes can be really intolerant, you know, um, you say the wrong thing in a school, you, they, you get in a lot of trouble. Um, but Democrats haven't tried to build that into law. They haven't tried to use the tools of government to enforce this in the same way Republicans have. So I, I, while well, I agree with you, the instincts are there. They've been better controlled on the left this year. Yeah. And this isn't That's a. Worried. By the way, this isn't a. I think that... Go ahead. I'm, 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 I was just going to say this isn't a. This isn't really a left-right issue. I mean, uh, uh, Vladimir Lenin was a leftist, right? You can you can be as impossibly uh, stifling of thought on the left as you can be on the right, um, and and. At the moment in our history, the right is a is a bigger uh, problem than that, but it, it is certainly not baked into left-right politics.
4: Right, it, it, you're right. I mean, people on the left or people on the right can be very critical, <clears throat> or even they can start to censor speech that doesn't line up with them. It, it, it just the question is: Do we gang up on our opponents, or do we facilitate free speech and open thought and critical uh, criticism of, of our own policies? And I think that. That's always uncomfortable, right? Transparency for a politician is one of the most uncomfortable things they'll ever go through. But are they dedicated to sticking with it, or do they try to push transparency out? And, and that's that's a key sign that I think we journalists are always watching for uh, to see how transparent government is. And the farther we get away from that, the more corrupt or potentially abusive our government can become.
1: Well, I hate you. You brought this topic up, so I just have to ask you, since you've got you know lots of people who who find you and follow you on Twitter, what you think of uh, the, of what Elon Musk has done, is doing, how that will impact journalism and maybe politics.
4: So for any in your audience who isn't on Twitter, and I guess like 90% of America isn't really on Twitter very often, uh, Elon Musk, of course, bought the social media site and then promised it was going to be a free speech haven, a model for how a public square should operate with no censorship whatsoever, and people can criticize him. And you know, but he, he made all these big promises and grandiose thoughts about even when people are criticizing me, I'm going to value their free speech. So, Go back about three four days ago, uh, there were a number of reporters who were covering this one incident. There was a younger uh, computer programmer or engineer of some kind who had uh, compiled open and public data that tracked Elon Musk's private jet and its whereabouts. And, you know, you can follow different uh, planes and, and, you know, air traffic controllers have to see where, where planes are going and it's all public information. So if you know how to find it, you can take that data and spit it out in bite-sized chunks and make it easy to follow. So this one computer programmer had been tracking Elon's jet and posting these links to Twitter and it irritated Musk to the point where he deleted that account. And then some, you know, and he had promised to keep it up prior. So some reporters noted the change in policy and wrote about it. And some of the reporters who, who were just critical of Musk in the past about policies or, uh, things he had done at Tesla, a completely unrelated story. They were also removed from Twitter. Some reporters just wrote a story, and inside that story, linked to a separate page, and in that separate page, it was like three hands removed from the actual link to the Elon jet whereabouts. Even those reporters were censored and removed from, I shouldn't say censored, they were banned. They were they were taken down. So from a PR perspective, it's pretty obvious that Elon Musk was very sensitive to the criticism immediate backlash. He put out two different public opinion polls, which are not very scientific, but on, on Twitter. And in each one, he put out one at first with, with four different options. How quickly should I, should I restore these accounts? You know, never immediately in seven days. He put all these options out and overwhelmingly people were like, bring the people back. Don't ban these journalists. So he said, I, I think I put too many options out there. I'm going to put a second poll out. <laughs> it's like, uh, he just got done saying, you know, the, the will of the people will rule of the day on Twitter in prior instances, and here he is banning these journalists, and when people vote to bring them back, he's like, ah, let's, let's scrap that poll, let's do another one. So he brings back a second poll, and again, people say, bring back the journalists. So just today, uh, many, of, many of those accounts have been restored, the ones that work at New York Times or Washington Post or uh, other prominent uh, folks, but a few others that are more independent journalists remain banned to this moment, uh, even now. And so what you see is just the, look, it's his company. He paid $44 billion for it. He can have whoever he wants on there. But it's just it, you have to note the hypocrisy in every time someone reaches a position of power, all of a sudden their <laughs> uh, their admiration for total and absolute free speech changes when they become the subject of criticism. So that's that's inherent in our human nature. Um, but it was just interesting to note that because it undermines that trust or hope that Twitter could still be be a place where you know I, I don't know why you go to Twitter, Edwin, but when I go there, it's because I can plug into. Journalists who have real-time, reliable information that I can get quickly, and as someone who, you know, shares news articles, I can find audiences in mixed places that want my real-time updates. So it's a two-way street. I can connect with folks that want my information. Yeah,
1: well, one like of, the, one of them, them is me. Is I feel
4: smarter <laughs> folks right. to all these folks.
1: Yeah, I use it a, as a news share. feed. I use it as a news feed. Right. I follow journalists whose stories I want to see. and 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 – that helps me stay current on the reporting that you and others that I care about do. Um, I'm reluctant to continue to do it. And, and, and this impulse that you describe of people in power to censor and to control doesn't work. And we know this as Americans going all the way back to our very second president, because John Adams, in a fifth, (laughs) you know, peak got Congress to give him the alien and sedition acts. And these were, Basically uh, censorship laws because he didn't like what people were saying about him and, and he was our first president who was you know not real <laughs> um, well, in part
4: because who it. came in after him too Th- Thomas Jefferson widely regarded awesome. a, a, a you know someone a big fan of free speech and the First Amendment right as soon as he became president all of a sudden his mood shift before he got to power he was saying if I had the choice between a strong federal government and no newspapers or a robust free press and no fe- federal government I would choose the latter. I mean, he was somebody who put the power of the press above the federal government. He gets into the White House, and all of a sudden, a, a bunch of newspapers in New England start criticizing him for his, for his policies, and he tries to get them prosecuted. He tries to get these, yep. these journalists prosecuted. So, yeah, when, when yep. you get in power, your, your perspective changes a bit, which is why it's so important a little bit. to keep, uh, uh, I would say, not a neutral journalism, but an aggressive, bold, and fair journalism. Every little bit of reporting contains just a shred of rebellion. Uh, against that power Mm -hmm. that would try to stifle it.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it's got to be accurate. It's got to be fair. It's got to be balanced. But balance doesn't mean both sides because the balance isn't this politician and that politician. The balance is these set of facts and those set of facts and how do I tell a story in a way that's balanced, right? And um, most of you journalists do a really good job. It's been an enormously challenging year for that, for sure.
4: Well, in this whole era, I mean, when truth itself is under attack, journalism can sometimes look like advocacy, advocacy for the truth. And, and I think in a way it really is. But what's the alternative? I think some people in the audience who only check in on journalism from time to time or who want to see it, they they, they get a sour taste in their mouth when they see that because they think, wait a minute, this, this piece of journalism feels like it's going a little too hard at this one politician
1: or, or that politician. Why is it doing that? Yeah.
4: Well, it's uh, no,
1: no journalist. Wants sometimes, to. sometimes they earn it. And in Illinois, where I sit, we've got plenty of politicians who've earned the <laughs> the uh, attack that comes.
4: Right. Well, like one of the, this is a ridiculous example, right? But sometimes it's, it's helpful in talking about how, it, you know, balance in stories. Uh, yep. You know, if you had, a, if you had a story about domestic abuse and, mm-hmm. you know, and you were saying, well, let's balance this story out. Does anybody know a, a wife beater in town? We can go talk to, you wouldn't do that. Right. You wouldn't go. No. So when you have somebody who's abusing power or, or abusing the public trust by dishonesty or deceit or lying, you don't include 50 percent of deceit in your story just to balance it out. That, that's not that's right. a proper right. or responsible way to handle it.
1: All right, Mark, we've talked. We have like one minute left. And I just want to because we've talked about the year and you and I focused almost entirely on politics. But politics also creates actual change. This year was an unbelievable year for our planet. Illinois passed the you know a, a landmark clean energy bill, and then Congress went ahead and gave us the Inflation Reduction Act, which was really an environmental bill. I mean, th- th- things like this. When we look back, we're going to think this was a pretty amazing year for that.
4: And not to mention, just a few weeks ago, or just this last week, the nuclear fusion lab getting fusion ignition, lab. which yeah. is like just this stuff that blows my mind.
1: Um, but were you yeah. excited about that? I think I cried during the press conference. I was so excited. Well, I-
4: I geek out on stuff like this and stuff about like thorium nuclear energy and all these different things. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, it's a weird rabbit hole to go down, but yep. uh, yeah, there's a lot of reason to be optimistic, but um, yeah, that, the, there are powerful interests that like the way that the power grid works now, the energy grid works now, and they're not going to go down without a fight. We saw that in Illinois.
1: Yeah. But they, but we made progress over those objections.
4: Yeah. It's uh, How, it's certainly interesting to watch that evolution take place.
1: All right, Mark. Well, we, we, I hope you have a great, uh, Christmas, a happy new year. I hope Santa's bag is full and that we can continue this into what's going to be also a really interesting 2023.
4: Well, same to you. Always great to chat with you, Edwin. Thanks for having me on.
1: You bet. All right, everybody, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, uh, we're going to really focus on uh, in the environment and energy with David Roberts. Stay tuned.
0: D. Miles. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentrath on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, everybody, um, welcome back. And Dave Roberts is joining us again. He spent, I don't know, a decade and a half writing about environmental policy and the impact of environmental change on the economy and society. I would say, David, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, most of his career has been spent chronicling heartbreak, broken promises, ideas that have gone, great ideas that have gone almost nowhere, and the complete destruction of our planet. But this year, this year, I think we've turned a corner. Welcome back.
5: Uh, Yes, that's just political journalism in general, isn't it? Uh, A chronicling heartbreak?
1: Yes. I I tell young people, particularly young people who go into their first campaign and are wide-eyed, and if they have the misfortune to have a winner in their very first campaign, I say to them, Oh, you're you're so much. So much pain is coming.
5: Yes. Right when I was starting, it was around the time of the Waxman-Markey bill in 2008, 2009. And that was Mm -hmm. sufficiently disastrous that it it conditioned me for everything that came after. But this year, we have a lot to be thankful for.
1: Uh, It is. Yes. Interesting times. I mean, in my own state in Illinois, we passed, I think, a very meaningful clean energy bill. And then Congress went ahead and passed... Inflation Reduction Act, which you know, inflation is important, but oh my gosh, the stuff about the environment is and climate is real and making a difference. It's a really Um, big
5: deal. I mean, I'm I'm getting, I'm getting, you know, reports from international, you know, like the International Energy Agency, which has gone back to revise its um, forecasts for renewables in the next five years because of the Inflation Reduction Act. it, It will be a global impact.
1: Well, let's talk a lot about that. So th- dig into it for us because, you know, uh, we, as weeks go by, we you know, it's a big bill. We learn more about n- not just what it said, but what but but how people are now able to use it and what it means.
5: Well, it's you know, because it went through this process called budget reconciliation, um, yes. it, it is it is an incomplete bill. Like like any bill that can pass the US Congress these days, it's 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 incomplete because it only has to do with spending, you know, so you can't do any regulatory stuff, you can't do any standards or rules. So all that stuff is ultimately going to be needed. But so what the Inflation Reduction Act is, is just a big spending bill that showers money on good things <laughs> that's that's more or less uh, uh um what you need to know about it so uh, you know the good things ranging from consumer side things so your your uh, heat pump to replace your natural gas furnace your electrification of your home your ev you know your sort of consumer products and then there's incentives for uh you know continued deployment of wind and solar there's uh, tax credits To help boost along technologies that are not quite as far along as wind and solar, like um, hydrogen and carbon capture, is just going to get a bunch of money. I mean, they just, just, just. I think it was yesterday or two days ago, the Department of Energy announced three point five billion dollars in grants to to um, start four hubs. For carbon capture and and sequestration, and that's a you know that's three point five billion dollars. That's money <laughs> over five years. Is 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 not nothing to shake or no. That's money,
1: out. and and for people who are listening, look when the government spends money, it, it has some direct impact. But but a lot of the spending we're talking about here changes the economics, so it impacts how private money gets spent. Yes, and that's where really in. big it, money is. It pulls
5: private money in, and this is worth noting too. So. Um, you know the sort of top line number on the bill. I think it was like four point seven billion or something spent on on clean energy stuff. That's just an estimate. So these are all tax credits, and they're not capped. That's the important thing. They're not capped. So if if the if the if that sector or if the, if clean technologies grow faster than expected, they're going to use up more of those tax credits than expected, and so the bill could be much more spending than mm-hmm. estimated. And in fact. Um, you know, private sector um, analysts have gone and looked at this and tried to sort of estimate, like, what's going to happen to the market when these incentives start coming on. And they think that the spending could be, you know, 10, 15 billion. It could be much more than the than, than the uh, widely accepted price tag, in other words. Yeah. That's not a set yeah. price tag. That's just an estimate of how much of those tax credits will get used.
1: And to be clear, that for people who are saying, well, whoa, government can't spend all that money, this money is going to save us a lot of money down the line. This is because it's really transformative stuff.
5: Yes, and that's um, in, in in several ways, right? So, I mean, if, if you tally it all up, it's it's overwhelming. So, I mean, it's going to save us in the sense that <clears throat> anything that reduces climate impacts is going to, you know, that compounds over every year in the future. And that adds yep. up to an overwhelming amount in and of itself. And then yep. the, second, the second bucket is um, air pollution, you know, just particulate Air pollution: getting rid of cars and furnaces and coal plants and all the things that produce particulate air pollution. That alone is going to have health benefits that swamp the price tag of this bill by like right. by by many multiples. You know, so right. just Hospital the air
1: visits, all that stuff goes yes, down.
5: Yes, just yep. the air pollution benefits alone pay for it. And then if you set aside the climate benefits and the air pollution benefits, it's just the fact that electric motors are much 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 more efficient than fossil fuel motors so we're going to need less primary energy we're going to use less energy to get the same output of gdp so just on a purely sort of accounting basis we're going to save a ton of money by shifting to electricity it's just a you know it's a win 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 everywhere every which way you look
1: and one more win is that we're creating um new sectors of the economy new businesses all of which will create economic growth too
5: Yes, yes. I mean, this is another thing, and there's a lot to talk about in the bill, but this is one of the things that's always worth emphasizing is, you know, through one lens, it's a clean energy bill, but through another lens, it's just a, a, a domestic um, industry bill. I mean, one of the things that the that the EV tax credits, the tax credits for electric vehicles, are trying to do is incentivize the entire supply chain to come into America, right? So like these minerals that go into batteries, are mined overseas mostly and processed overseas and batteries are mostly manufactured overseas today. And so if we're going to move into, uh, you know, a sort of an electricity based economy, we'd like to have some of that supply chain onshored in the (laughs) U.S., creating good U.S. jobs. And there is, again, billions and billions of dollars um, uh, of incentive. And you're already seeing, I mean, just since the IRA passed, you've seen, you know, a dozen announcements of, Big battery manufacturing plants, big EV manufacturing plants, new um, uh, mines for for lithium, you know they're looking around for lithium in the us. so mm-hmm. just there's already even in the immediate wake of the bill, this huge rush of economic activity, all of which is going to create jobs ironically, mostly in red states
1: yep and and um, our allies are a little concerned around the world that we may have gone too far in incentivizing all these businesses to come here. I'm sure there'll be some adjustments on the margins. But talk for, one thing you said mm, will we'll make people nervous, right, that we will be doing more extractive mining for metals like lithium. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's never clean. But isn't well, it also true that it's a whole lot cleaner when they do it here than when they do it?
5: <laughs> yes, it can be more or less clean. I mean, for instance, you could elect not to use – children slaves to mine it uh, right. you know boom you're a lot cleaner uh, so there, there's a million ways it could be cleaned up but you know i on, on this subject i like to pull the pull the lens back a little bit and just look at the bigger picture so it is true that if you're shifting from fossil fuel based machines and engines to electricity you're going to um really increase demand for this set of minerals right which right Mm -hmm. now which right now is mostly are mostly mined overseas and in pretty grim conditions and that and that is true and it's worth taking account of and it's worth um you know putting time and energy into trying to get the, the the cleanest and the safest mines we can here but it's just worth keeping the context that you know when you build a battery you need some minerals but you just need them once you know you mine the minerals once and you build the battery with a fossil fuel engine You need fuel constantly for the lifetime of the engine. So for every time you drive that car, they're they're mining or digging or drilling more fossil fuels. So so the scale the the scale of destruction wrought by the fossil fuel economy is going to be cut, you know, to a fraction of itself. So it, it you know again like it's worth paying attention to how we mine and process these minerals, but. It, no estimate of the of the ecological damage of that mining is going to come anywhere close to the ongoing day-to-day ecological destruction of fossil fuels because every single every single machine or engine in the entire world that uses fossil fuels needs a continuous supply of fuel which is why what? the fossil fuel economy is just this engine of ongoing Destruction. destruction. So no, so nothing, nothing in the clean energy economy is going to hold a candle to that level of destruction that we're, that we're experiencing today ongoing right now.
1: Yep. Yep. And this year is, I mean, so, so we had enormous legislative victories that have, that have really kicked off an overdue change, but we're seeing it. We've also had some amazing sort of technological victories. And, you know, you've talked a little bit about the kind of different future for geothermal, for example. That's, mm-hmm. I think, fascinating. And the year has ended with somebody igniting a, a pellet of hydrogen and having a fusion ignition, which <laughs> is like the great, I mean, I I know it was done, a 100% it was done so that we can have a nuclear deterrent, was done for military purposes. But it has such world-changing energy possibilities that i don't want to get out of our conversation without talking about both what you think is this sort of interesting world of geothermal and maybe this fusion thing and and you could also explain to me but well, i don't understand how a heat pump works and i'm thinking <laughs> of changing my house but i don't understand it
5: <laughs> well um uh, that's a lot to take on what one uh, uh one i would just say that the fusion thing you know, no matter how enthusiastic you are about it, even the best possible case, we're talking about maybe this being relevant to energy in two to three decades. You know, yeah, they're talking maybe 50 years. So, so it is, I don't ever want to squash people's sense of scientific wonder. wonder. I mean, it's, it's amazing. You know, it's amazing what's yeah. happening. But, but, um, in terms of energy, I would just encourage people to, look a little past the headlines you know one level down there are energy miracles unfolding all around us constantly like the 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 scale and speed with which wind and solar have come down in cost and started spreading and become the cleanest sources of energy in the world that to me is already a miracle like let's sit back in some scientific mm-hmm. wonder at that and 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 similarly like there have never been more Scientists and and engineers and entrepreneurs working on every every single corner of the energy world. So right now, it's just all around us. There's this hum of innovation happening, and it's just coming out on a day to day to day to day basis. And it's going to be you know it's going to be um, you know we're going to look back in history. I think as as this as a incredible wave of innovation, and and I don't think fusion will be part of that. Story really. Not I mean, so hon- honestly, I think we'll be will be decarbonized before fusion gets here. You know, you yep. can you can yep. that's a that's a maybe yep. a bold prediction, but I think it's true. So, geothermal. The reason geothermal is interesting, you know, if listeners know, there um, geothermal goes way, way, way back. Just because in areas of the Earth where there's some volcanic activity or some plate plate activity beneath the surface, where plates are grinding on each other, there's just natural heat created down there, and there are a variety of ways to go down and tap. That heat. I mean, they were. They were. That's what um, like hot hot pools, you know, are and hot springs are. So, so in a sense, humans have been using that geothermal energy since they were a species. But you can also um, find areas where it's hot enough down there where you can run a turbine and create electricity. So, geothermal like that has been around for a while. the The, the advances today are. <clears throat> What they've realized is there are areas of the Earth where there's this volcanic activity are relatively limited. Like there's a ton in Iceland. They have a ton of geothermal in Iceland and like in, there are spots in California, but it's relatively limited. But if you go down deeper, the deeper you go down, it, it is hot way down deep everywhere on the Earth. So if you can get deep enough, there's heat available to you everywhere on earth and you can use that heat either as heat to heat homes or for industrial processes or you can use it to create electricity and so there's there's efforts underway now to use um lasers and millimeter wave all sorts of funky uh funky Mm -hmm. technology that i don't even understand where it's not where you're banging on the rock you're literally melting melting the rock with these rays and and they're working on technology like that that can get down Deep enough, where you have intense enough heat that you can create relatively cheap electricity and be competitive with other electricity sources. And the cool thing about that is, a, it's available anywhere, so any country can do it. I mean, th- one of the things to remember is that eighty percent of the countries in the world are are fossil fuel importers; they're energy importers. So any energy source, you know, that is available everywhere is going to disrupt that um, that that global very familiar global dynamic so a it's available anywhere and b it's um unlike wind and solar it's steady it's always on it's always there so it can it can provide um dispatchable electricity to fill in the gaps when when wind and solar are you know at an ebb and that's what you know those are the kind of pieces of the puzzle that we've been looking for sort of like wind and solar are the bulk Players In the game, they're the cheapest. So we're going to use as much of them as possible just because they're so cheap. But because they're variable, they come and go with the weather. We need a lot of other balancing technologies to balance out their swings. And that storage is one of those. You can move demand around. That's one Mm -hmm. of them. But then geothermal is going to be a huge piece of that because it's always on. It's always there. It's always available. And that is like there's so much technology advancement happening in that field, too. I expect really cool things out of that, uh, you know, in coming years, I really think it's one of the dark horse technologies to keep an eye on the heat. Pump thing, uh, we can touch about the heat before, pump thing if you want. Or, or, yes,
1: sure. Absolutely. I just don't understand how when it's like in Chicago and it's four degrees Fahrenheit outside, it's supposed to draw the heat in.
5: Right. Well, this the heat exchangers are somewhat magical. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> the thing is, even in relatively chilly air, there is still some heat. That's the thing, is the heat is just, you know, uh, molecules bouncing around Yeah, anything
1: over zero Kelvin,
5: yep. Yeah, so so you can extract heat out of almost any air. So one heat exchanger that people are very familiar with is just the refrigerator. That's what um, the refrigerator gathers the heat inside the refrigerator and takes it to outside the refrigerator, basically, leaving Mm -hmm. the inside of the refrigerator extremely cold. The heat pump is just that, except it's taking the heat out of the outdoor air and bringing it – inside your house. But the cool thing about a heat pump is any other source of heat, you know, you're getting like one unit of energy input, you um you get like a, a half a unit out. You know, you're like losing you're losing some energy in the the um trans, transformation of like natural gas to, you know, mm-hmm. when you burn it, you lose mm-hmm. some of the embedded energy. Mm-hmm. That's just mm-hmm. the nature of any fuel burning source. Right, not but with,
1: not 100% efficient.
5: Right, exactly. But heat yeah. pumps are not generating heat they're just going and collecting it they're just going and getting it so for a heat pump for every one unit of energy you put in, you get three or four units of heat back, so it is wildly more efficient than any other heating and cooling technology, which is why you know the clean energy people are so on a tear yep. <laughs> to yep. to advertise these things and get get these things in people's minds so that just like a, happened to a friend of mine in in Seattle just a couple of days ago, their natural gas furnace went out. You know, and when it goes out, you don't have a lot of time to to think. You need heat in your home, yep. and so what yep. we need you know, what we need to do is is have heat pumps there available for those people in that situation. So that means educating, you, you know, uh, contractors, which is a big deal, training the workforce, yep. and just just on a cultural level, just getting the word out that there's a cleaner quieter, more comfortable, more efficient way to heat your home that uses electricity.
1: So anybody listening to this, I mean, if you think the two of us are excited, it's for good reason. It's really for good. I mean, the, the the era of fossil fuels and the internal combustion engine and all of that was enormously important for human beings. And it was, a, a you know, but not not a permanent feature of our species. We lived before it. We're going to live after it and we'll live better after it.
5: Yeah, uh, it, it, the fossil fossil fuels are, you know, if that's all you have, it's kind of like the fish in water, and you don't think about it too much. But yep. once there's an alternative, and you can sort of step outside the fossil fuel paradigm and look at it from outside, you realize it's just incredibly. It's a terrible way. <laughs> it's a terrible way to 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 energize Power yourself. It, it, cre- yep. it, 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 it requires enormous ecological destruction. It creates enormous terrible health benefits, and more to the point, if you look at one of these you know if you look at the Lawrence Livermore lab has these uh what are called spaghetti diagrams sankey diagrams that show here's the energy that enters the economy and here's where it goes. And what you realize when you look at one of those detailed diagrams is that something like 60 to 65 percent of the raw energy that goes into the economy is wa- is wasted, ends up as waste heat. Oh Two, two-thirds – I mean just think about that. Two-thirds of the raw energy that we're digging out of the ground with all this destructive mining and drilling gets wasted, goes up as heat into the atmosphere as waste heat. Fossil mm. fuels are incredibly inefficient way to power things. And, 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 you know, with energy or with electricity, you're just so much more tightly controlling and you're using, you know, so it's like double the efficiency. So if you just could tomorrow, you know, snap your fingers and switch everything in the economy from fossil fuels to electricity, you would be using half the raw energy. You would need half the raw energy to sustain the same level of economic activity. And that's just right. remarkable. Like shifting from fossil fuels to clean electricity is a remarkable upgrade in every conceivable way.
1: I hope everybody listening, particularly here in, you know, Chicago, it's winter. You probably have gas appliances and gas heat. It's worth thinking about and, and looking oh, into let me the systems that are available.
5: Yes, yes. Let changes. me just say this too because there's a lot of bad infor- there's a lot of bad old information about heat pumps circulating, even among yep. contractors. Like there's been a lot of really recent activity in that area that a lot of people are not aware of. So it used to be that a heat pump would basically fail below a certain threshold of temperature, you know, like freezing, like below freezing or below 15 or whatever. You'd need fossil fuel backup. Like, And that's what a lot of contractors will still tell you. But it's just Mm – let me just tell your listeners that's not true. It's not true anymore. They have – Heat pumps that will operate perfectly well down to negative 15 degrees like they have them in, you know, they're all over Iceland. They're all over countries that are much colder than ours working, working fine. So there is no, there is no area of the country where you cannot do the full job with a heat pump as long as your house is reasonably sealed right reasonably yep. efficient that's always yep. that's yep. always part of the picture you know it's is getting some basic sealing done to your house so whatever yep. your heat is is more efficient. you don't lose all the heat but heat you know. pumps can do the job anywhere that's important
1: the, so the, the other thing and you sort of mentioned it when you said we can move energy around but this is also an era where people are where there's a lot of progress in thinking about how to be smarter on the grid
5: yes there's a lot of thinking about the grid generally i mean uh, you know there's sort of two two sides of the grid there's the transmission grid which is the big long distance sort of like interstate you know lines yep. And then there's and then there are distribution grids which are like local road networks so it's like the you know where you take right, the exit the off, to your house right take the exit off the interstate and all yep. those all the little power lines around your house so there's there's innovation going on both sides of those but one of the I just want to say about the transmission grid we're not going to get where we need to get with clean energy unless we build a lot more transmission lines everybody you know this is like a people are saying this over and over and over again in the clean energy world it can't be said enough we need lots more long distance transmission to carry clean energy from where it is most concentrated you know so like wind wind in the upper midwest or solar, solar in the southeast to where it's Needed like these sort of load centers on the East coast. So we need a lot of long distance transmission and it is very difficult to build long distance transmission in the US because of a thicket of weird rules and because of NIMBYs. So one of the things I want to say is if you want to clean up the energy system and you want to um, reduce all these harms of fossil fuel use and you want this new clean economy that is that we can see out there now that we can see the shape of it. We need to crush Nimby's. We need. We need to. We need, we need to, a path. That's true. Whether we're we talking about path. energy
1: or affordable housing, it's about. I mean, yeah, it's about
5: housing. Right. We need it in housing, and we need it in um, yeah. clean electricity. Yeah. We need people to be more cooperative about building the infrastructure necessary.
1: Yeah. Hey, I, is, I, have we made progress on the efficiency of long uh, <laughs> of, of long term transmission, or do we lose a lot of energy, you uh, know, over the long transmission lines?
5: it's uh, 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 well a little bit of both we don't lose a ton we lose I mean relative to the amount of like um, well we don't lose a ton it's like I think it's like two or three percent or four percent for for super long distance lines but we okay. can but we can improve the efficiency with which you use them because right now for instance like the amount of electricity allowed to flow through a transmission line is well below its capacity because we need this kind of buffer just in case. Because if you get too close to capacity, you might throw off sparks and start fires. And we don't know the actual real-time amount of electricity flowing through them because we don't have sensors and stuff on them. So we just have to be extra extra cautious. So if we have sensors on them and we can tell exactly how much electricity is flowing through them, we can come much closer to capacity much more consistently. And that alone... Freeze up like 40 percent more energy flow through existing transmission lines. So, yeah, there's like innovation going on in that area, too.
1: I, I can't believe we got through a half hour like this. I have a whole page more <laughs> questions. Happily, 2023 is not going to be the end of this conversation. Um, I, I Look, before we go, I just want to say like, you've been educating people about these issues for a long time. You deserve some of the credit for the enormous progress our country has just made because you bang against this wall for long enough, and sure enough, something amazing happens.
5: Well, that's very flattering to say, but let me inject one more note before we go about the election, which is a lot of good stuff happened at the federal level, but let's not lose sight of the fact that Democrats now have four – Trifectas statement level trifectas that they didn't have before, which means in the next couple of years We're also going to see a big flood of really good really interesting state level clean energy legislation
1: Yep. Yep. I think it's a great last point. All right. Have a happy new year a merry christmas And uh, we'll talk in the next year. All right. Thanks. All right Everybody that was remarkable dave roberts who knows, you know more than the rest of us will ever know about all this stuff Stay tuned. We're gonna take a break for the news uh a- and um uh Tim Hogan is joining me when we get back thanks
0: is in draft on wcpt 820
1: okay everybody i i don't know about you but i thought that was fascinating and it leads um you know it's part of the reason why i'm optimistic about the years that we're facing we've heard um from colette at the beginning of the show about the enormous challenges to uh any kind of government policies that even consider race um, anymore, um, and yet about how effective those policies can be to begin to address some of the enormous inequities that didn't happen by accident here, um, and, we should, and also how once they're addressed, you know, society's so much better off and everybody's better off. So that was part of the conversation. And um, um, I'm optimistic that those changes will continue, notwithstanding what the Supreme Court does in the private sector, uh, most likely. And then Mark Maxwell, of course, talked about this amazing year in politics and um, what we have to look forward to in the next one. <laughs> and then Dave Roberts, whose newsletter, Dr. Volz, you really should read. I mean, was that just stunning on the uh, changes in the environment that we can in, in to impact climate change. And this is the positive stuff that's going on. I, I thought it was great. Anyway, I, I am gonna be joined now by Tim Hogan. Um, Tim is a political consultant, he's a campaign guru. Um, I, I, my relationship to him begins because he's the mastermind over here at Heartland Signal. And um, he said he got a unique uh, view of the year we've just had and what we're looking forward to. So Tim, are you on? Not quite. Um, You guys, let me know when Tim joins us. Um, uh, So uh, let me, you know, let me, while we wait, turn to you. It's 773-763-9278. And after all, this last hour of my show is always uh, mostly yours. So I'd love to hear um, from you, you know, as your thoughts on the year, your thoughts on the challenges that we face in the next year, the battles you're happiest we won, the ones that uh, piss you off the most that we lost. all of that is a uh, fair game. So call seven seven three seven six three nine two seven eight if you want to join the conversation. Um, I know I uh, you've heard me on this, but you know if it weren't for the Supreme Court, I'd be more optimistic. Um, But I think even there, we're going to make some progress. I I can't believe they're going to move forward with this incredibly crazy idea that they asked for, mind you, um, which was the independent state legislature doctrine, the one that says, um, you know, a a gerrymandered legislature like in Ohio or Wisconsin can just pick whoever they want to be president. I, I I think even they are going to back off that. So that's good. Um, So we can talk about the Supreme Court. We can talk about anything else. Um, 773-763-9278. But my first person who's joining me is the one I told you about a minute ago. Tim is with us. Hi, Tim.
6: Hey, Edwin. It's good to be here.
1: I'm glad you're here. Uh, What a year. And I thought we'd take, this is my last uh, opportunity to talk to people before the year ends. So we've spent the last couple hours in different ways sort of talking about um, uh, the successes and the challenges that came this year. And I sort of want to get your sense about the things that the victories you're most proud that we won and the ones you're sort of most pissed that we didn't.
6: I think one of the victories that I'm proud of that falls sort of in the bucket of we had a much better midterm than I think anybody anticipated is We defeated a lot of election deniers in key positions. Um, Don't get me wrong. There's a bunch of them out there who won, and there are more of them, uh, you know, in the Congress and considering running for office every single day because that has now become a litmus test for many in contested Republican primaries. But I'm thinking in particular about the secretary of state races that are sort of sleepy chief election administrator races. You don't always hear a ton about in the news, but I think got much more attention this year because people were concerned about the threat to democracy. And I'm thinking Michigan, Minnesota, Arizona, Nevada. We had four really high profile secretary of state extremists running in those states. And the reality is, had had any of them won, we would have keyed ourselves up immediately for a slow moving constitutional crisis for twenty twenty four. If they stayed true to their word that, you know, they would not have certified Uh, Joe Biden's election in 2020. They were preparing to potentially not do that in in 2024. So I think those secretary of state races were really important this last year.
1: And you know what I loved? Um, Because I just think in America, the voters really are sovereign and it's a powerful, powerful thing. Um, When the voters spoke, I think all but Arizona, um, those election deniers conceded. They said, yep, The voters have spoken and we've lost. They didn't pretend it was a fake election. They didn't mimic Donald Trump. I mean, again, Arizona's got an exception to that. But around the country, um, the idea that we can run a free, fair, large election, I think, got a big boost in the arm this year
6: yeah agreed and i think it's a function of two you know we always talk about how donald trump being on the ballot or not being on the ballot juices turnout <clears throat> It also juices certain discussions and certain narratives that he is able to get people riled up about and able to you know focus a conspiracy or or harness a conspiracy that's sort of in the muck and maybe not getting a lot of traction online but he can pluck it out of obscurity and make it a national narrative and i think for a lot of these candidates, they just they don't have the power to do so. And Carrie Lake at a moment felt sort of like a larger than life conspiratorial figure for us, given the, num- the amount of attention uh, that she generated. Same with Mark Fincham, who is the secretary of state candidate in that state. But even that, yep. really, they, they, they kind of fizzled, which is uh, which doesn't mean this is over. Uh, but means we kind of dodged a bullet here.
1: Yeah, I, I think the insurrection. I've said this before. I, I think it's like. You know, we've, we're no, we're, we know we're going to win. The battle isn't over. There are going to be a lot of casualties between here and the end of this this fight. But we, but this year, you know, we held their biggest attack and repelled it. And I think we, the country is going to, we'll have left-right fights forever. But this notion that somehow we shouldn't trust our elections, that we should find a democracy to solve our problems. I think we beat that back this year.
6: Yeah. Yeah, I think we're in a, I think we're in a much better space there. And I think what's interesting, too, is seeing Donald Trump announce his candidacy. And I think there was some anticipation after having a very good midterm where the outcome was we beat back a bunch of those threats that we were going to dive right back into this insanity about questioning election results. And I, you know, I don't want to say I'm I'm pleasantly surprised It's probably the wrong way to put it, but. And uh, it's been interesting to see that he has sort of launched his campaign and then took like a month long nap uh, only to wake up to sell some like digital NFT tokens for himself. And OK, we have think, to talk about that. <laughs> I, I mean, I think what worried me about him launching is like, OK, we're going to get right back into this. He's going to he's going to get his people fired up immediately. And it just hasn't happened.
1: So I don't want to write him off. It's dangerous to write him off every time anybody ever has you know it's come back to haunt us so we need to be yeah. right we need to be m- mindful and i think happily the justice department is not playing games they're being very serious and i think they're going to keep going and we're going to have a really wonderful wrap up to the january 6th committee pretty soon where they'll tell us what they found mm-hmm. um so so i, I he then but So, yeah, I don't want to make light of them, but these Trump cards that he's like trading, I mean, how do how do you can hear I'm stumbling for words? I I absolutely inarticulate about it. If you are a Trump supporter, if you believe this man should lead our country, how do you look at this? How do you how do you look at this and then, like, go to Christmas dinner with your family that might include somebody who warned you that it was a crackpot, you know, before?
6: Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's well. And these aren't even I mean, it's important to know, too, that this is not even a fundraising play. You know, this is not a, uh, you know, Save America pack or, you know, MAGA pack play for him to raise money for relax. This money just goes directly into his pocket. And he's selling them at like $99 a pop. I know he sold a bunch, but it is, it is, it is wild to me. It is just a play for profit for him. But the fact it's just so debasing for someone who is the president of the United States to be out selling digital trading cards of themselves. And, and that's what he needs to do to, to make some money at this point. And to your point too, about, yeah, we absolutely cannot write him off. I mean, that is, that is how, He surged and I wouldn't say came out of nowhere in the past, but we weren't we weren't ready. We weren't on guard for him. But, um, you know, I think this election, he's more motivated. He's telegraphed this. He said this. He's more motivated by vengeance than anything else. And that is a very different play. And his people are angry. And so don't get me wrong. It's not that they can't latch on to that. But to me, that is a very different play than the con man who is going to admit to you that he's a comment, but the system is rigged and he is the only one who can navigate it for you. So give him a shot play that he made in 2016. So we'll see. um, We'll see what what it looks like, you know, as we enter the new year here. So
1: on the topic of vengeance, since you brought it up, uh, the GOP has a majority in the house. Um, to To the extent that they ever get a speaker, but we should talk about whether they'll get a speaker and what that's going to look like. But at some point that fiasco will be done with, and they promise to use their time and the house's time to like dig into Hunter's laptop and to find, you know, Joe's old underwear. And like, this is, this is the stuff they want to be known for after the 117th Congress led by Democrats, also with a slim majority passed laws that, make the country demonstrably better. And our, and people are going to know it because the impact of those laws are coming in the next two years. So we're going to get, the country's going to benefit from good governing Democrats, and they're going to have on display every day, I, I don't know, Jim Jordan ranting about Hillary and Hunter, and that cannot be
6: a good policy, can it?
7: No. It can't be good I, I politics.
1: Mean,
6: right. I, I think it's not. I think it is. it is, they are so captured by their base uh, that there is, you know, they're they're talking to look. The scary part is they're talking to a large swath of people who are nodding their heads when they say Hunter Biden's laptop, and you don't need to say anything else. It's like Benghazi, right? It is, it is a code for something, and they will take you down every conspiratorial rabbit hole they can dig uh, associated with it. And for their base, that is fine. But in terms of electoral politics, in terms of. Speaking to the broader part of the country, broader part of the country no, they, uh, that's that's not what people care about, right? That is, we know that's not what people care about. We we hear you know, poll after poll, and sometimes it was not good for us that it was inflation or crime or cost of living. Uh, Hunter Biden's laptop was never on there. so for them, to- it
1: also doesn't solve those and- other problems. <laughs> right, last right. last I heard, right. like digging into a the laptop that was Hunter Biden's is not going to do anything about inflation.
6: Right. Well, that's like Kevin McCarthy these like well, we're going to do the first day. Uh, of the new Congress is we're going to read every word of the Constitution on the floor, and it's so, like, well, that's great. You guys campaigned on gas prices; that'll surely help there. And like, please wake yeah. me up. I want to know who reads the Insurrection Club. I just like want to know who uh, is going to speak that on the on the House floor. But I, you know, yeah, I don't think it's smart politics, but I think it is. They're they're so captured by their base that they're they're, they're going to do yeah, it. They're trapped. There's there's nothing else for them to do, and it's alienating for some of their members too. It's not all. It's not many, but you have people like Don Bacon who is. A moderate out of nebraska saying that's not what he wants to do you know and uh with a with a, a slimmer majority that they have you know functionally mirroring the democrats in this last uh congress they don't really have a lot of room to lose people so we'll we'll i mean I, it'll be interesting to see what they do what's the productive interesting i think that they can get done
1: yeah interesting is a good word I, I think it will be fun and i, I cannot wait to see them eat their own because they're going to be at yeah. war with themselves the whole time.
3: Yeah. Well, it's, and, and,
6: and to just like a very specific policy, that will be, they will be interesting to play out. And like, this is beyond, I mean, what we're going to see, to be honest, every day on the house floor, we're going to have some vote on some anti-woke critical race theory legislation, some anti-trans yeah. legislation, some anti-abortion yeah. legislation. It's going to be culture wars on the house floor. That is what it's going to be. But there are things that they have to do and have to, debate that are going to be critical to, for example, Ukraine is the example I want to talk about. It is it is a you know, there has been a slight erosion of public support, particularly among Republicans for sending aid there. And uh, Kevin McCarthy and others have signaled that, yeah, we're not going to just continue to send aid, uh, no strings attached. But then you have someone in his own caucus like Michael McCall saying, uh, yeah, we are. <laughs> yep. So they they are gonna they are gonna have a debate internally too about what that looks like. And like you said, Kevin McCarthy's not even no, no guarantee that he's even speaker. So uh it's chaos, I think, is what we're gonna see from them.
1: And even if Kevin McCarthy well, pick take your pick among any of them who could be speaker. We're we gonna well, learn yeah, pretty yeah. quickly that none of them is Nancy Pelosi. Correct. Correct. I mean, and she had a slim majority and did miracles. Right. Exactly.
6: And, and they, you know, look. It is. It is probably. If I had to pick them, it's probably Kevin McCarthy. I just don't know who else it would be. You know, I don't know who else they're going to rally around or put up who would, um, you know, have the votes for speaker.
1: Do we wait for white smoke to come out of the chimney? I mean, what's the signal that they're that they've like uh, it's ballot number eight hundred in the Republican caucus and they're getting close?
6: Yeah, yeah I don't know. I mean, like, it's it even you know, it, Kevin McCarthy is not even putting out. Uh, signals that he feels you know like he's gonna get there right like he's said over the last couple of days that he thinks the hardliners in his caucus haven't moved that their opposition to him you know is still strong and that it could put their entire agenda in jeopardy so you know it's a little bit of him uh signaling that you know the the, the five folks that haven't budged um also could could derail him he knows that
1: yeah, I like him saying it'll put their agenda in jeopardy, but they don't really have an agenda, I don't think.
6: <laughs> yeah, those, yeah, those are so, just words. like the, by, yeah. by that, that by that he means yeah, the Hunter Biden laptop investigation will be slowed down here. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Oh my gosh, well you know, I mean, they don't want to
1: take a they don't want to take a constructive vote ever. So things like uh, keeping the government running, you know, just little things that you kind of got to do. They don't yeah. want to
6: have those votes. They don't, and it is. It is also at its core, though. I think you know we can look at their agenda and say you know it is ridiculous. It is ridiculous, but it, at its core, it also to me showcases again that it is much easier to be a Republican in Congress than it is to be a Democrat because the burden on us is to make government work, and that's very hard. And the the what Republicans sell people is. Basically, that the government doesn't work, so they, they they do have the ability to go do this job, screw things up, and for oh, a segment of their voters, that's just fine. Uh, and that is that is difficult. Maybe the thing that they promise people is a tax cut, right? Something you can get done via reconciliation uh, if you ever have both chambers. Something that individuals feel immediately or can see in their paycheck. It is it is the almost it's, it's the unfairness almost of being a Democrat versus being a Republican. We have to pass the program. The program has to run properly. We have to then tell people that we passed the program. The people then have to see the benefit of the program. It's the work we should be doing, right? It is it is good work. Uh but I think it's a lot harder. And I think this is like the, the low bar for Republicans um in in Congress. We're about to see it once again.
1: Yeah. Um, and Americans uh, you know, rejected it. I mean, Donald Trump and that kind of Republicanism has lost three elections in a row. I, yeah. I wish them, I wish them the same luck for the next six elections. Maybe they'll grow up, I, you know, and, be, and become a governing
6: party again. Maybe. Right. But, um,
1: if not, we'll need another one
6: somehow. Right. I mean, you think about it, yeah. we're, we're going to go through eight, eight years of having some form of, of having Trumpism on the ballot. Right. And it, for, other than, other than really one election, uh, it did not turn out well for them, so it, it was, right. they're going to run it again in twenty twenty four, and we'll see.
1: And you know, at the beginning of this conversation, you and I were talking about how we weren't we weren't prepared for him. We didn't take him seriously enough, and 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 he snuck up on us. But the real victims, I think, of being unprepared for him were the established Republican Party, which just got destroyed.
6: Yeah, I mean, when when your ba- when your message that you sell to people is conspiracy. And that you shouldn't trust institutions, uh, including the government, including the media. Uh, when someone shows up who's a charismatic con man and, bla- and, and can powerfully harness that message, it honestly is a, is a, was a decent messenger for like, yeah, you shouldn't trust anybody. You shouldn't trust anybody in anything. Just trust me. Yep. He was yep. self-centered enough that he was able to believe that and sell it to people. You know, that's, that's, that's the Republican Party's fault. They teed themselves up to be taken over by someone like Donald Trump.
1: I totally agree with that. I would add that the message was not just distrust institutions, distrust government, but quite a bit of it was also, and you know what, we white people really need to rally around each other, yep. which yeah. happily m- m- most white Americans rejected, but enough of them in the core of the Republican base um, uh, heard it.
6: Yep. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, there is part of that timing, I think back in, in 2016 Um, that for people, for voters who were able to hear that, I don't know, call it a racial dog whistle, it wasn't a dog whistle, it was pretty overt. Um, That was mobilizing for for some people in 2016. Um, You know, coming out of of two years of of an Obama presidency and and the option is Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, I I see that those people were supercharged in 2016. Yeah, I think they were too.
1: I think they were, too. And Hillary, I mean, they I, I don't know if it's calculable, the amount of money that was spent vilifying Hillary for, I don't know, 16 yeah. years. Right. It's amazing yeah. that she did as well as she did.
6: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so, I agree.
1: So, so um, for me, um, last year also confirmed um, the true danger of not having a legitimate Supreme Court. And that one persists into the into 2023. Um, while I think we may have turned the tide on, you know, the anti-democratic insurrection. I, we have definitely we have a lot of work to do on an illegitimate judiciary at the top that is captured and um, partisan and outcomes driven. And I, I wonder what you think about that.
6: Yeah, I mean, that is it is. Frustrating. I mean, you're talking a little bit about the independent state legislature theory. Um,
1: Certainly, that's and, one.
6: But you know, yeah. it, it's it's that. It's the Dobbs decision. It's you know uh, all of the reactionary decisions we're going to see um, on uh, preventing gun violence legislation to prevent gun violence. Um, and it is something that we're going to have to. I mean, you know, Joe Biden's uh, executive order on, on student uh, debt relief. Yeah, yep. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't know what the good answer. I. I just think my difficulty is I do not think you are in a position right now in the Senate with the current makeup of members, or really on it because like 2024 is going to be very hard for us uh, in terms of the Senate map. The Senate map is very difficult. Yep. Yep. Um, but you know, I don't know that there is a Senate-based or a Congress-based fix there, right? I know that we. Uh, Democrats have talked about, um, you know, either adding seats or I think maybe more palatable to a larger number of members would be adding ethics. Term limiting. Ethics
1: rules. Yeah. We've talked about all of them.
6: yeah. Yeah. They're not governed by anything. It's, and it's like, we've put people, the long game that Republicans have played, they put people there who now are the case study of why we should have those rules. So, um, that is, that, that is a dismal note for me in 2022 and, and looking at it twenty twenty three. 2022, because my answer, I don't know. I, I don't think I have a good answer.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's the biggest challenge still out there that we're facing. I mean, the noise in the House is going to be awful, um, but it isn't like threatening the core of who we are the way a rogue court does, a dictatorial court does. Um, so sure. I worry about that a lot. I really do. Well we have yeah. um but but we also saw this cycle and, and you know you're a you're an operative, you get this. I, I was so impressed with the Democratic Party community building that went on in Michigan and Wisconsin. The the way Lavora Barnes and Ben Wickler helped worked with great elected Democrats, but built organizations from the ground up that created so many on ramps for individuals to get involved and then to keep them involved, you know, helping make their communities better. I thought that was an amazing thing and probably good for the country.
6: Great for the country. And I think, you know, both of those states are very good examples of you have strong party chairs who are able to lead people. And also importantly, they were there early, you know, that they were building this infrastructure in the off year that people can't feel like they're just engaged when it comes you know, two months before the election. That that can't be the way that we do this. So both of them are good examples of that. And we just have, I think we have finally turned a corner a little bit of we are resourcing those parties in a better way. There's always more to be done, but, you know, empowering them to do what they need to do, hugely important.
1: Right, because politics can't be transactional. Oh, vote for me, this is what you get. It's got to be about building something together, and that's what why you have to do it all the time, not just when you want somebody's vote.
6: Right. And it is. It is also. I mean, you know, you, you know this coming up in Wisconsin. You want to talk about Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court races uh, coming up this spring. Um, Two
1: big races. That, be- that one and a special yeah. election that will determine uh, whether the Republicans get a supermajority.
6: Yeah. Yeah, and so it is. It is. It is those types of races too that you know don't always make headlines. Definitely not nationally, but are critically important. And I think you know an underappreciated part of it too is uh, just thinking about the Supreme Court a little further. For Dobbs in particular, there's a mechanism that I think we've seen voters rally around in 2022 that I think is a bright spot for 2024 and ahead. And that is ballot measures. Right? We saw it kick off yeah. with. Uh, voters in, you know, Ruby Red, Kansas, rejecting a, um, a ballot initiative that would have restricted abortion in the state. They said no. And then you get to November and you have Michigan and Vermont codifying it in their constitution, California doing the same, and people in, again, red states, Kentucky and Montana, rejecting restrictions. So, you know, sometimes, you like you talked about, you got gerrymandered state legislatures are not going to be responsive to you. You've got a Supreme Court that's problematic and can't save us. Sometimes it's a very local and state-based answer, and it's citizens organizing to get it done. Yep. And I really do think the ballot measure is a way for. And no, you can't do ballot measure in every state; not every state has citizen-referred ballot measures. But in the states where you do have it, where those rights aren't protected, which I think it's still like ten states, we should get on it. You know, we should be smart well, about in, it. Well, and, and we can
1: absolutely. I mean, the voters in Ohio added a constitutional amendment to stop gerrymandering republicans ignored it and now the republicans are trying to get rid of the right to even have the ability to have uh uh you know that kind of public uh process entirely yeah
6: totally the
1: land that democracy forgot
6: yeah yeah it's 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 so obvious what they're doing and Frank LaRose, who's their secretary of state, is just, he's not even hiding it, right? It's very, they want to talk about no. outside special interests. I mean, what are you talking about? What outside special interests are fueling ballot measures in your state? They can't point to an example of that. That's what they like to say. I mean, I don't know what they're talking about.
1: No, they they, they it doesn't matter. Facts don't matter to them. Yeah. Um, Tim, do you, uh, yeah, this has been uh, fabulous. Do you want to stay on and hear from uh, sure. callers or do you have to run? Let's do it. All right. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, 773-763-9278 7, 7, 7, for those of you who don't have me on speed dial. We'll be back in just
0: a moment. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, we are back and I'm uh, Tim Hogan, who wears many hats, including he runs Heartland Signal, but he's also a uh, a very savvy uh, political consultant and uh, has led campaigns and led communications efforts, really knows this world. He's here with me as we take your calls um, and for me the last time this year. And let me begin as you start to dial in just by telling you how grateful I am that you've listened uh, and been with me all year and that you've shared your views. Um, It's been really interesting for me. Thank you. All right, Paul, what's up?
7: Yes sir, thank you Edwin and
8: uh, nice to be on uh with Kim. Uh so if I can get just two remarks you know start with uh not my my usual law stuff but I'll try to make a remark about that and if I have time. Uh so about energy. Uh what I think the new house will do is what they did in 2015 because they're all about shutdowns and remember we uh we we uh, repealed the uh re- the prohibition on exporting domestic oil in 2015 and I looked into, why why did Obama do that? And then I, I went, oh, I see why. It was part of, remember, they never gave a, a, a budget. They never they never allowed a, Obama to have a budget. And so it was all ominous spending bills. And it was that beauty in 2015, the same one in which Marco Rubio put the poison pill for the Affordable Care Act, which uh, defunded the high-risk corridors so that many of the insurance companies, these were the ones that were going to keep... Uh, you know, establish a fund for many of the sicker people who are guaranteed to get coverage through Obamacare. Uh, and, and Marco Rubio put the, the amendment in to defund that. Well, they also put this bill, this amendment in to rep- relieve or, or uh, repeal the restriction on, on exporting for our domestic oil and gasoline. And so last year we exported 29 percent of our domestic oil first after we give it to the to the fossil fuel companies we give it to them then they put it on the world market and make a whole ton of money on it so i predict that what they will do is su- they will shut and of course they shut down the government to make this happen until we pass the spending bill so that's what this because that's what this this bunch of bag of rats will do that's the only way they ought to play and they will do something to it will be a big giveaway for the oil companies um to uh, to, to give them a you know some kind of giveaway for them it looks like it brings down uh, gasoline prices. But on top of that, when you're talking about fusion, and I was thinking about um, when I was a young chemistry student at Michigan State back in the early 80s, um, and I had a professor, and I, I asked him the same question that he always gets a smile at me. I said, if we can send a man to the moon, how come we can't do fusion. And he smiled. He said, well, the thing is, the technology that we use to go to the moon, we already had." It was basically a big project management uh, problem to put them all together. The fusion technology, we don't have. We cannot contain this reaction. And it led me to think about all these years. And I know this person, uh, he still is a good friend of mine for over 40 years. Um, the, The Republicans always say regulations stifle innovation and creativity. And I started thinking, that's not true. And I asked this friend of mine, because he's a research and development chemist, uh, now and has many, many patents. I said, actually, regulations stimulate innovation, don't they? And he said, absolutely. Regulations do stimulate uh, innovation because whether they're government regulations or whether there's a set of conditions that some company who I'm developing a product for has for me to work on. Yeah. I, it, you know, the product has to do this, this, X, Y, Z, all this other stuff. And it, has to, it also has to comport to government regulations, that's what makes me have to be clever. If you take the the research and development scientists and say, oh, it only has to do this and there's no condition, who's going to take the cheapest, you know, crappiest way out? He said, oh, well, you didn't tell me it it had to be fireproof. You didn't tell me it couldn't be environmentally toxic. If you don't tell me all these things, I'm not going to do them. I'm just going to solve the problem the cheapest way I know how." And so, yeah, it is more effective to have regulations, regulations actually stimulate innovation. Lack of regulations, and there's no better example than the pile of regulations you have to have in a NASA space capsule, which is where so many innovations have come from. Things like Velcro, we all use every day, came from the stuff they put on the bottom of the astronaut's boots that sticks them to the floor because they couldn't have magnets and they couldn't have a lot of stuff. And some old lady who was a seamstress came up with, well, use this hook you know, whatever that's called, hook and loop idea. And that's how we got all of these things, by those conditions that the NASA rockets had to have. And so, yes, regulations stimulate innovation.
1: Okay, then. Tim, what do you think?
6: Well, I mean, the, the second point is interesting. And it's uh, But on your point on the expiration of the uh, export ban uh, in 2015, yeah. I mean, look, going back, I was just looking at it as you're mentioning it. It's something that Republicans – Uh, demanded in 2015 as part of one of those budget deals uh, in order for Democrats to get some tax credits for and a tax incentive for wind and solar power. So and it's debatable, you know, like there are some Democrats who uh, uh, in particular, like Jeff Merkley and Bernie Sanders, who proposed some legislation to do it. I think the, the will was not there. Um, uh, not, not wide enough in order to uh, re-implement it and different people projected, like, you know, Goldman Sachs was saying they thought that it's some sort of export ban would backfire. And that's probably going to get in the muck of it. And it's, that's not something that's going to get through uh, uh, Congress at that point. But it is funny that that is what Republicans demanded in 2015 in order for uh, in order for some incentives. So it's, a, it's an interesting point that you bring up.
1: And, yeah, I want you to know, I uh, think it's perfectly fine to export the stuff. I do. I think America's uh, uh, entire balance of payments issue changed entirely when we did that. It turned out um, there's a global market. There's a global price. uh, It's a commodity. It doesn't, you know, keeping it on our shores just meant we're sending a whole bunch of cash over to the Saudis and over to people that are uh, difficult players in the world rather than have the money go the other way. So I'm not a guy who has a problem with that.
8: Well, I, I would say this about uh, let me show you this about that is that if what I have to do if I raise tomatoes in my backyard in the summertime my price if I if I just use them my price for potato uh, tomatoes that during the summer is zero. If on the other hand my goal is to lower the price of tomatoes by taking them down to the supermarket and selling you know putting them in the in the supply there, yeah I will lower the price of tomatoes by you know a hundredth of a penny. And it's to, to the degree that it does. So it works out for a dozen. It's, it's that aggregate, aggregate effect. And, you know, I'm going to go back to that. Uh, to, that's too wonky, Richard v. Philburn. But I'm saying is that if we used our own domestic oil, uh, we wouldn't be. There, our problem right now is not a demand problem. The Biden administration, uh, when, we have, uh, when we have unemployment at 3.5%, it was. And now all that, the, that uh, Jerome Powell can think of is the same Paul Volcker solution, which is we're going to hammer interest rates up until it's so expensive companies want to hire people, and I guess just well, think that it's better that they, it's better that people have no job than pay higher prices and have a job.
1: And yeah, well, I, I, is, I Paul I Volcker, say, I agree with you, Paul. I agree yeah, with you, but I I, I, also, I, I, sorry, not Paul Volcker, Jerome Powell.
6: It, yeah. It also gets like a little just on the on the on the export thing and your your analysis. It's 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 a little more complicated than that, right? Because it's a it's a it's crude, right? Is what the what the ban was on, and it's a question of capacity for refiners, right? So it's I get what you're saying, but it's also whether or not there's capacity to process it and and, and things like that. But I, I know what you're saying, and I think it's just, you, you know in general. I'm saying in general, our
8: problem has been since the 1980s, since the Reagan Reagan era. We have we we don't have a domestic option and we they they pursued inflationary measures. That's the whole trickle down economy, the whole supply side economy. And the way they offset it was by importing deflation with these cheap uh, goods that were made overseas. And now we get stuck with a pandemic. And I guess it didn't occur to us. But we have our problem is we have fewer domestic options. And that's why we have uh, people with money in their hands. If this is truly, really, if it's real inflation, that means people have money in their hands chasing too few goods. I'm not convinced it's totally real inflation. I'm also convinced that it's partly corporate greed. And a lot of that greed has to do with energy and that's driving up the price of everything. So that's my point.
1: There's no question. Profiteering has played a big profits. Corporate profits have gone up much faster than wages in this. And, and, the and, uh, the, uh, Keep rising uh, interest rates are going to harm workers a whole lot more than anybody else. Anyway, Paul, thank you for uh, paying attention and being part of this conversation all year. I hope you have a happy new year and we're going to move on. Thank you. Thank um, you, you bet. Brian. Hello,
7: Brian. I he- hope you're doing well. And thank I'm you. I'm going to be as brief as possible. Uh, but. Um, Oh, first of all, uh, Paul was just referencing trickle-down economics. Uh, that's where you, uh, way back with Reagan, uh, and uh, pretty much to this day, uh, you get tax, incredible tax cuts to the wealthiest, and so the money's supposed to trickle down and help everybody, but uh, the money always trickled up, and what trickled down uh, was a kind of a trickle-down meanness, in my view. But uh, the main reason I called, it's uh, my understanding that it's going to be Monday, or is it Wednesday, that uh, the uh, committee on uh, uh, Trump is uh, supposed to, uh, we're supposed to find out if there's going to be charges against Trump?
1: I think you're talking about the January 6th committee. Right. and, yes, and they, the January they, committee they, I
7: think they should be handing down charges of treason myself well but, uh, you,
1: whats your hang on, your thought? Hang on. They, they they've told us that they're going to make criminal referrals those aren't the same thing as charges Congress does not charge anybody with a crime Congress can't hold anybody for a crime Congress is not the courts the, that that um the Justice department has to do that and what Congress has said is hinted that at their last meeting when they give their report um, that they will include criminal referrals, which is to say, in our opinion, we think there's enough evidence, Justice Department, for you to go ahead and and open a criminal case. But here's the thing. They've already opened the criminal case, right? And it's moving along. And um, uh, th- we have a new special prosecutor who did not take like a nanosecond to get up to speed, but uh, dispatched uh, a whole bunch of of subpoenas, uh, you know, even before he got back on shore because he was working in Europe. Um, so, so I, 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 it'll be really I, uh, important for the January sixth committee to end on a on a high note. And what they're going to do for us, more importantly, even I think than the criminal referrals, is they're going to summarize their case. And remember, um, I mean, I think I'm one of eight people in the country that actually read the Mueller report, all of it right? The, the, these reports are important, but the public doesn't really get their arms around them. So they've opted, after having, I think, brilliantly done their hearings, to have a concluding hearing where they make their case, right? And, then, and they'll end their case, and they'll end it with criminal referrals, and we'll all know why, Um, which is great from the court of public opinion. But if you want to see Donald Trump, you know, in the docket facing a court of law, that's a different process. So I, I just want to be sure that,
7: well, uh, it's my, well the, the truth is no one is above all the law, including Trump. And in my what? view, uh, his actions were treasonous. I can't believe he's going to get away with this completely. Uh, hopefully he won't. You know, he'll get charged with something. And the other point, uh, there's also, I want to make real quick, uh, there's this uh, <clears throat> a lake out in Arizona. Her name is, and uh, she lost and uh, she's still insisting that the whole election process is uh, rigged. And I think uh, uh, this kind of uh, talk is uh, continuing on. It's uh, very terrible, and uh, I think uh, at some point it has to cease. It's a very terrible for our country and very terrible for uh, the survival of democracy. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, and I
6: think there are, there are some sources that are saying, like, part of the reason that she's doing this is because she wants to be Trump's running mate. She's trying to work the deal uh, in Arizona and look like the most staunch election denier, conspiracist that she can be. Uh, but, you know, it is what's what's I think frustrating about this is we all know that this is bogus. Right. But there there is a process that she gets to go through. And that's the process anyone else gets to go through. And I think she won some a question about a partial ballot inspection uh, last week, and so yeah, it's it's really annoying that uh, this keeps her in the headlines. But if it turns out, and it will, like every other complaint that we heard from Trump, for example, in 2020, uh, it's not going to change anything. It, it, but I agree with you; it's 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 is very damaging to our process that she hijacks the tools of election review to just keep herself in the news
7: because she wants to be Trump's running mate. It's Terrible.
1: But, Brian, thank you take some comfort. Both
7: of you and thank you, Edwin, for taking my call.
1: Of course. And thank you for uh, listening all year. It's been fun to have these conversations with you.
7: Thank you so much, Edwin. Take care.
1: Okay. Well, let's move on. We're taking your calls at 773-763-9278. And I know, Ron, you've been waiting.
7: Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, the uh, Republicans will be uh, Investigating uh, Hunter Biden's uh, harm drive. So, uh, what, is the, what is their end game? To uh, put Hunter, Hunter Biden in jail? To impeach Joe Biden? To discredit the FBI? You know, is there something something else uh, they're after?
6: Tim, you want to take that? <laughs> I think it's. <laughs> I mean, in my in my mind, it's just a constant cloud of conspiracy, right? Like that's that is their game. And it's a little bit what we were talking about earlier, which is like to discredit institutions to make you feel like you can't trust people to make you feel like there's always something else there. Uh, that is more than meets the eye, whether there's something there or not. And it is a, a conspiracy that they have sold to their base, that I think their base buys that keeps them engaged. And it really is to me, like I said, it's like Benghazi. It's the shorthand. It's just all, all you can, all you need to say is Hunter Biden's laptop and, a big chunk of the country will nod their head and be like, yep. And it's unfortunate that that's, that's where we're at. But I think that's their play, keeping their people involved and riled up.
1: Yeah, and, and you can't be a contemporary Republican if you're not angry all the time. I mean, it, it, right? So the party can't let their base not be so so enraged that they take a breath and look at the world around them. You know, reality is not on the side of the GOP these days. They lose elections. They don't care about the environment. They don't care about governing. So the only thing they have is to keep us, you know, bread and circuses. But in this case, uh, it's rage and, and and circuses. I mean, that's what they got. And they can't afford, Ron, to let their base not be furious. Because the moment they lose that, they've lost their grip. Then they have to govern. Yeah. So Hunter's laptop is a prop. It's not an end. They don't they don't care if Hunter goes to jail. They just need their base to be angry. Because the you know what, the moment a charge turns out to be nothing, they have another one teed up for the next day. Right. So right. So I would not I would not get, give them that much patience or credit. There's nothing there.
7: Yeah. And also the uh computer repairman who gave the hard drive to uh Billy Giuliani uh he has written a book to make sure that justice will prevail. So why doesn't he write a book about Donald Trump?
1: <laughs> well, uh, I, I'm not going to read his book. I don't care what book he writes. You know, I'm not going to read it. You're not going to read it. It's probably terrible. So let's, you know, the Justice Department is doing its job. Slowly but surely, grinding away, they're doing their job. And I think we have to have to give them the credit and the space to get it done. People are being held accountable. It's taking a while, but it always takes a while for fair justice to do its job. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, you know, I mean, the Supreme Court could could mess this up somehow, but I don't even think they will on a, on this criminal stuff. So we'll see, we'll see. All right, thank you. You bet. All right, so I'm. We're at seven seven three seven six three. 9278 if you still want to join the conversation um but Tim we're like closing the year here for me I know uh, there's st- still 10 days or so of shows on Heartland Signal and you got to worry about all of that but politics is sort of winding down and um I'm just thinking that you know next year's a weird year because it's more municipal and local elections But that's a real year of of team building for Democrats across the country. How do we best use next year to strengthen uh, the party, to strengthen communities so that we are ready for the onslaught of another presidential?
6: Yeah, yeah, the the presidential is going to take up a ton of space in 2024. And it's also um, like I was saying, you know, the the Senate map is going to be very, very hard for us. Uh, It doesn't mean there are not bright spots and opportunities, but, you know, we have uh, Democrats up in Pennsylvania and Ohio with Sherrod Brown um, up in Michigan and Wisconsin and Minnesota and Nevada, um, you know, and the opportunities for us are are smaller. I mean, look, we got we got Joe Manchin up in West Virginia, too. And as much as we complain about Joe Manchin over the last two years, (laughs) well, we we want him reelected. we would like to see him reelected. You know, our, our, our big pickup opportunity basically is like Florida, you know, so it's 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 a very, very tough year. Um, and and we'll see. But uh, I think it's a time to, to reflect on, you know, what the strategy looks like for 2024 and to start to do some party building. And the other, the other thing I would notice, you know, this is also the season of state legislatures, and there's a lot to keep an eye on across the country there. People are still reacting to the fall of Roe v. Wade and legislation being passed. There's still a bunch of anti-LGBTQ legislation being passed. There's still a bunch of, you know, bad uh, uh, legislation that could increase gun violence. So it's a a year to build. It's also a year to be on guard and watch what's happening in your state legislature. Yeah.
1: All right. We have time for one more caller. And I think I'm going to let Roosevelt be my last caller of the year.
3: (laughs) Double Double D, can you hear me?
1: Loud and clear.
3: Okay. So, we've, we've heard about the big announcement on the 15th of Trump, right? Uh, okay. So, let me give you, I don't know, I tuned in of late, and I've been listening off and on, because I'm, you know, I'm doing some, some, some work here. Uh, did you hear the big announcement of uh, Biden on the same day at 12, uh, 1223 p.m., to be precise? Let me give it to you like this. Inflation, easy. Uh, he signed the uh, Respect for Marriage Act. Brought back, just the past two weeks, by the way, he noted. Uh, Brittany uh, Grinder came home. Gas prices are lower than a year ago. And I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, I believe, for the past five months that they've, they've been lowering the gas prices. And last but not least, 10,000 new high-paying jobs in Arizona. So I don't know if you mentioned that, but I want you, I wanted to close the show with good news as far as that is uh, concerned.
1: Now- I, You know what? Uh, I'm going to take turning you into an optimist as the greatest accomplishment I've had on radio in a year.
3: <laughs> I think you are. I think you're, having a, you're rubbing off on me. You're rubbing <laughs> off on me. Now, as far as- I want to ask a question of you, and I'm going to hang on. As far as the gra- uh, gas prices- Isn't it true that every time there's a Republican, the gas prices go down? And in this past midterm, did you notice that the gas prices went up just before the elections and they came down within the past two, three weeks, they they came down. Now, mind you, when uh, uh, Christmas or holiday season, so less people are, you know, do to spend more gas. So what do you think about that as far as the gas prices and the Arabs always, in my opinion, manipulate the prices because they love Republicans since Reagan or maybe before that, and they don't like the Democrats. I'll close it with that and I'll hang up and listen to you. Thank you very much. Right.
1: Okay. Thank you, Roosevelt. Happy new year to you. Merry Christmas. To all. And, and Tim, do you have a thought on whether gas prices are being manipulated by uh, foreign actors to I- interfere with our elections.
6: Uh, what I'll say is, I think it's almost more direct than that. It's, it's companies seeing that they could make a profit and taking those record margins. I think yeah. it is. I think they yeah. they saw an excuse with inflation, and and
7: that's it.
1: Yep, I think so too. So Roosevelt, the the consensus here is nope, not an international conspiracy, just greed. You know, and that's that's, that's all American is apple pie. <laughs> Well, uh, Tim, thank you for joining me this afternoon and thank all of you who have been listening all year long and being part of this conversation. I um, I hope that the end of the year for you is happy, that you're, um, uh, there's no coal coming down the chimney for both environmental reasons and uh, because you deserve better, um, and, and that 2023 gets off to a good start. I look forward to doing this again with you next year. Take care.